everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sunshine and the Brain, still part of the Perry Veritas Network, the podcast where we have conversations about mental health in as down-to-earth way possible. What's up, everybody? How's everybody? How's everybody doing? Oh, Lord. Uh, it's funny. It's funny. I... Like the the question of how's everybody doing has gotten like just like the I noticed the past few episodes like the intonation. Whereas in the past I might have uh, I might have been like how's everybody doing and then just sort of like laughed a little bit. Nowadays I'm more like how's everybody doing? Oh, <laughs> oh goodness, fear, fear, and loathing abound. This is uh, this is a terrifying time, and so naturally. <laughs> When I ask the question, how's everybody doing? Well, I, I just think terrified is sort of the answer that, uh, that we all have. Anyway, uh, yeah, nice little, in, nice little lighthearted opening. <laughs> so this episode is with uh, DJ Maya Light. Uh, DJ Maya Light, she's uh, completely incredible and amazing. I, I really love this episode and I can't wait to get to it and share with you. But obviously, you know, what, what I, you know, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, what I like to do is take a little bit of time in the beginning intro to sort of give a bit of a check-in, talk about what's going on, talk about how I'm doing. Whole idea being to normalize these types of conversations, you know, that it's, um, that it's a good thing to be open with folks about what's going on emotionally and mentally that, you know, that these conversations can, you know, not be, not be as taboo as they are. In any case, uh, usually I jot down like a couple of show notes in the beginning, just sort of things I want to get to. And like, uh, yeah, I wrote down politics, colon, and then a few lines later, I wrote self, colon, and I didn't add anything in there because all the things were so many things that it's like, I just didn't, I couldn't, I didn't, you know, anyway, I thought, well, maybe to just, let's just like talk for a bit and that'll be like where the intro is at. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's like, good Lord, man. Good Lord. The emotional inundation is, I think, probably the phrase that many of us are feeling. I mean, here I sit recording this intro. It's Tuesday evening. January 19th. So in a historical snapshot, tomorrow is the day that Joe Biden is supposed to be sworn in as president and uh, Trump thereby leaving office. So this is, uh, this is supposed to happen tomorrow. And we're in a certain place in history where there are many Americans who, on both sides of the aisle, by the way, who are legitimately, genuinely afraid that we're on the precipice of a second civil war as a nation. So, um, yeah, I, you know, as like, I thought about waiting to record this tomorrow, <laughs> sort of like after I know what happens, but I think it's more interesting to do it now, you know, like on the precipice of, you know, as, as like a looking glass into, you know, 
not knowing what's going to happen and being in a place of sort of deep anxiety about it, you know? I mean, I saw an article on the AP where it said that the FBI is actively searching the backgrounds of National Guard troops who are going to be there at the inauguration tomorrow um, in order to make sure that there aren't any National Guard troops who are affiliated with uh, right-wing extremist groups who plan on doing something to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. <sighs> so, you know, that's happening. A couple on top of that, obviously, as we talk about every single episode, you know, multiple, multiple months so far into a pandemic, easing it quickly into full year of being in lockdown from a pandemic. I mean, it's January now. So we've basically got January and then February. And then next thing you know, there we are, March, you know, first week of March, second week of March, we're going to be at a year of pandemic. I mean, just a month ago, the nation was at 300,000 deaths. Now it's up over 400,000 deaths. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's literally crazy. So, you know, emotional inundation, that's kind of, that's kind of where it's at. I mean, I know people who have been locked in their homes for months now and basically have MSNBC on constantly and are just like glued to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week at this point. I'm not so sure that that is a healthy approach to living. <laughs> and by that, I mean, it's not a healthy approach to living. It's a rather unhealthy approach to living. So I kind of figured out for myself kind of how to consume the news and how to take in information in a way that maybe can give me a pathway to feeling a bit more positive and hopeful about what's going on in the United States and in the world and what might happen tomorrow, you know? So like one thing I I've done is uh, I've talked about this before, I'm significantly limiting myself to television, especially television news. You know, I'll turn it on if there's a big event happening and something needs to be seen. So like, on June on January 6th during the storming of the Capitol building. I mean, that I totally turned on and watched, you know, just to see what's happening. Right. So there's moments like that, but for the rest of the time, I pretty much don't watch any kind of cable news or television at all for that matter. But what I do do is I listen to podcasts. And so there's a couple of podcasts that I've kind of listened to that have sort of helped me with the news. And my traditional news podcasts are first of all, this podcast called the politics guys which is a podcast that puts down episodes twice a week. It's usually a conversation between, uh, you know, between a liberal and a conservative, between a Republican and a Democrat. And these are folks who understand how to have conversations without <laughs> blowing a gasket and understand how to connect with each other and understand how to kind of, um, you know, do do those things. And, and uh, so it makes a really interesting conversation. So listening to those podcasts, you know, the politics guys is helpful because 
it's a little wonky sometimes, like they get into pretty serious policy talk, but you get a good idea in terms of what, what a reasonable left-wing person might say for certain things. And believe it or not, reasonable right-wing person might say for certain things. And, and uh, kind of gives you hope that there's room for compromise out there. Another podcast I listen to about the news is a podcast called The Daily. This is a New York Times podcast. What they do is a deep dive into one topic per episode and then just a brief background into the other major news stories that, you know, like you should probably know about in terms of things that are going on. So I listen to that not as religiously as I listen to the politics guys, but I do listen to that um, on occasion here and there, and it's definitely helpful as well. And then, um, and then I sought out just recently some, you know, sort of perhaps more reasonable conservative voices, some of their podcasts to kind of see what's going on there in order to like get a good idea in terms of what's being said and how people are talking about it. So for example, there's a podcast called, uh, it's a, this student named Jonah Goldberg. I forget what the podcast is called, but it's a student named Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg, and he's uh, he's a Republican, cut in the cloth of like the old school GOP, a la William F. Buckley, you know, um, just this intellectualized approach to government and uh, um, you know things like that, and and so I listened to his podcast, and it, it, you know it was really helpful to hear a Republican who is like a tried and true Republican who's been dead set against Trump since the beginning and who thinks that Trump's behavior has been abhorrent. And especially in recent weeks and recent months since the election, not calling it fanning the flames of dissent purposefully um, misleading, you know, his followers purposefully, you know what I mean? All, All these things that he's done and People still follow, you know, it gets me so upset that I don't even remember why I was bringing him up. (laughs) Like that's how stressed out I am. Truth be told about all this stuff. You know, it's like, you just like, you know, there's nowhere to turn. It's just everywhere. There's literally nowhere to turn where there isn't this intense kind of stress there, you know? Anyway, by finding Republican voices that aren't crazy, it helped me to understand that there are people out there who I disagree with, who I can find agreement with. Right, that we don't actually live in an all or nothing world. And that we happen to be living at a time where there are multiple fissures all over our nation's culture. You know, there's so many lines separating people. It's sort of stunning. And terrifying. And also probably normal. You know, when we look back from like a most basic rudimentary understanding of the Civil War, we sort of talk about that 
war existing along two sides of one single fault line. And that's the fault line of, you know, one side saying we ought to have slavery and the other side saying that we ought not have slavery. But when you really dive into that time in history, what you discover is that there are in fact multiple fault lines and it's not that simple. And that's what's going on here too. You know, we put out an episode with Andre where we talked about how in the weirdest way, it's like the future of America kind of depends on the Republican party. <laughs> and I think that's right in a, in a, in just a, the weirdest kind of scariest way, because you know, the, the, the biggest fault line between the folks who are storming the Capitol building, roaming the halls there, calling out names of folks like Pence and Nancy Pelosi, erecting gallows, bringing zip ties, you know, all these things. These folks are of a certain ilk of Republican base. And then you have a whole other side there that ranges the gamut from Voted for Trump, not caring about him that much, not liking him that much, but voting for him anyway for the sake of the Supreme Court justices. And maybe, just maybe, something having to do with the existence of your job, like if you're an engineer with a fracking company or something like that, right? Where it's kind of like a logical vote, but you're not that into him. And those folks can vote for him and then be disappointed by his actions on January 6th. And they are. And you have Republicans who are like libertarian and have nothing in you know, common with Trump whatsoever. And many of them were just anti-Trump from the beginning. You've got these old school GOP, you know, the grand old party kind of William F. Buckley intellectuals who never saw Trump as an ideological ally. Many of whom might have voted for him, but not because they knew him to be an ideological ally, but because they knew that they could potentially get him to sway different choices that would be more in line with their background. The devil you know, right? And then there are the people who literally believe that what it means to be a good Republican is simply how much you support Trump. But that's what it means to be a good Republican is to simply support Trump. And the more support you give Trump, then why the better Republican you are. That's, um, that's not, that's not okay. I mean, for so many reasons, but even from a Machiavellian power perspective, that's really not okay for the Republican party because you can't trust that these people are going to vote in every election. They're following Trump for Trump's sake. If Trump decides on a whim to tell them, hey, don't vote in this election, guess what's going to happen? Uh, they're not going to vote in the election. And now you don't have their votes. So Republicans may lose 40 to 50% of their voting base if those folks decide to disengage with the U.S. government in that way. They go in the direction of, oh, this is sort of pointless. So it's really something. The amount of uh, 
times I'm losing my train of thought and this intro is really stunning. <laughs> uh, my brain is so tired. It really is. So yeah, bottom line is, you know, concerned for tomorrow, for the rest of the week, the next few weeks, for the next few months, you know, we're not headed towards a good place. We're headed towards a place where folks are refusing to even talk to each other. You know, the Republicans have to figure out what they stand for. And they may be looking at seriously weakening their numbers. Democrats, you know, have to get some shit done with the majority power in Congress that they have right now. They need to get shit done to prove to people that their leadership matters in a good way. Because if they don't, the next election around, there's going to be another Trump and it's going to be worse because this Trump is actually going to know what they're doing. So it's terrifying. You know, try to navigate your way through that and every direction you face feels like the end of the world. And then you're like, I kind of want a girlfriend. <laughs> Like, that's ridiculous, right? I think that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so I'm doing all right. You know, it's like just kind of managing all the stress, right? Not trying to let it overwhelm, not, you know, not trying to do too much self-forgiveness. Also doing those things that I know are helpful, you know, maintaining swimming, although it just decided to get cold again today. You know, making sure to try to get exercise, making sure to do creative things like podcasting, making sure to engage, making sure not to give up, you know, all those, all those kinds of pieces. And it's, you know, it sort of is what it is. I did get my new tooth today, finally. <laughs> if you listen to the pod all together, a few months back, I had a dental surgery where I'd had this cavity that came on that sort of happened at the beginning of the pandemic. And then, um, so they had to remove the tooth and put in the stud and then, you know, set the stud and then wait a few months until it was all set. And then finally I could order a tooth and uh, have a tooth put in. So now I have a new tooth. Uh, I cannot stop tonguing the tooth. <laughs> it's like there was always a tooth there and then that tooth fell out. And then uh, I had a stud there for months, and now there's a tooth there. So now it feels weird because I got used to there being a stud there. Typical, typical, typical human brain. But uh, anyway, yeah, that wasn't such a bad process. It didn't really hurt. They just kind of put it in and then had to tight, tighten it and all that stuff. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't too difficult. But you know, I I, I just don't I don't like the dentist. I, I generally speaking don't like the dentist. So. Um, but they're so nice there, you know, so it's not like half bad. So now I got to go back on, uh, on Thursday, I think Thursday, maybe Friday, or maybe a day next week to check, um, to check kind of how it's, how it's settled and if it's in a good spot. And then once that's done, 
And then I've got a few more cavities that need to get filled. And then I'll just basically be cooking, you know, that'll be uh, it except for regular cleaning for my dental stuff. And then kind of scooching along there. Um, and in terms of everything else, you know, like the big, the big thing in terms of therapy is always for me, rewiring the brain, you know? So whether that means, um, you know, whether that means trying to figure out what a certain anxious reaction is, where that's coming from, and then to find that emotion and tap into that, right. Which is so often anger or grief. That's kind of where that stuff goes. And so, um, you know, that activity. And then the other piece is, you know, that I don't, um, I don't talk about everything on the podcast. Like, uh, you know, I'm encouraging here that we feel more comfortable being open books and wanting to share our emotions as I think that'd be a healthy process, but also recognizing that, that, that there are certain things that we just might not feel comfortable sharing or might not ever feel comfortable sharing, you know? So that's kind of how that goes. So, I, you know, I, I, I know I might seem like an open book here in terms of what I'm willing to share and how deep I'm willing to go at the same time. The truth is I'm, I'm also kind of not right. There are things that I'm sort of not willing to do. I'm not willing to go there yet. So Anyway, I, you know, I, I do have a, a certain trauma that I'm not ready to, to go there yet in this, uh, in this particular setting. But I was ready to go there in another setting at one point, and then I, and then I wasn't ready to go. <laughs> Which is to say that, like, there is, a, there is actually a podcast episode of this show that I recorded a few months ago. That for me, and not for the person who I interviewed, because to be honest, she's perfectly comfortable with you know me putting the episode up now. But for me, I'm actually not comfortable putting it up, and I might not ever be. And she's been like super understanding about it and all that stuff. I mean, she sat down with me and we talked for like two hours, and I was the one that was like, I can't, I'm not ready, I can't put it up yet. But um, yeah, that's the other thing is I'm starting to dive into that trauma now a little bit with um with my therapist. So, you know, that's kind of intense. I took the week off from that part of this process this week though. Cause I was like, there's too much, uh, there's too much going on. <laughs> Let's dive into that topic maybe next week or the week after. And she was actually super proud of me because setting those boundaries is something that I need to, you know, work on and be able to do with everyone, you know? So, so there's that. So that's basically what I've got going on. <laughs> I don't even, I don't remember what I've said for the past 23 minutes. I've been talking for 23 minutes. feels like it might be 50 minutes. feels like it might be five minutes. I don't even fucking know what's happening. So why don't we just uh, go ahead and jump into the episode. As you can tell, <laughs> a snapshot into where things are. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely scatterbrained for sure. There's a lot of stuff going on. So scatterbrained is the name of the game, man. The name of the game. Anywho, let's go ahead and start the episode. <laughs> this really is an awesome conversation. DJ Maya Light is uh, such a pleasure to talk with. I uh, really hope that you enjoy this. I know that you will. Um, I'm already excited to, you know, reconnect with her down the road and continue the conversation. 
you know, I just think she's great and uh, had a lot of really incredible things to say here. I don't want to spoil anything by going into detail in terms of what we talk about, but, uh, but yeah, it's just an awesome conversation, man. I, I think you're, I think you're, you're going to like it. So look at, you can actually find her on Instagram. Her Instagram uh, call sign is also DJ Maya light. And that's a L I G H T as in the thing that turns on when you flip a switch. Right. And uh, first name is spelled M A Y A. DJ Maya light. Uh, she DJs gigs, although it's obviously a lot harder now for a ton of reasons, but she, she did DJs gigs sort of all the time. Um, especially in the ecstatic dance scene, which uh, if you've never done it before, it's actually really awesome. Some of the best DJs do the ecstatic dance scene scenes and uh, you know, it's just people that want to dance. So it's um, it's an absolute blast. So uh, yeah, she did DJs for those kinds of things up in the Bay area. So if you're up there, keep an eye out for her and uh, definitely check out her IG. She posts a lot of, um, you know, really inspirational things and also lets us know in terms of what's going on, what her plans are, you know, gigs coming up and things like that. Um, so yeah, definitely take a, take a good look at her there. Uh, besides that, you know, like, and subscribe to this podcast, please share it with as many people as possible. Let's, uh, grow this to 10, 10 listeners. <laughs> We're going to have a party at 10. I think that's uh, I think that's the goal there. But anyway, so yeah, let's just uh, let's keep growing this. Keep taking part in the conversation. If you want to write me and uh, have your voice be heard in the podcast, you absolutely can. My uh, address is still Josh at periveritas.com, So feel free to reach out to me there. Otherwise, uh, let's get right to the conversation. So roll the tape. Uh, so here we go. This is pretty cool. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> my, my pleasure. So the, right out the gate, the first question I have to ask you, just as a thing, um, do, can I call you Maya? Do you want me to call you DJ Maya? What? Um, how do I sort of address you here for the conversation? This is the first time we've ever talked voice to voice. Um, Maya would be perfect. Maya's perfect. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. And I have a, I have a question about your name. And I'm curious if it's a name you chose or if it's a name you were born with. Um, it's actually a name that came to me over 10 years ago in a meditation. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have so much to talk with you about. But immediately I'm like, please, please tell me about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually the first time that I had ever been in a guided meditation with a teacher. And he was he was basically taking me to a place which I had actually never been to. I saw the mountains and he was inviting me to see my higher self. And I, I had this really profound experience where I felt like whatever that meant to me in that moment that I couldn't even really look at myself um, because the, the energy of what leading up to that moment of, of just seeing this, whatever this part of myself represented in that, in that moment. Um, I didn't, I didn't quite understand, like, I don't even, it's so hard to put into words, but he, at one point he asked me to, um, to name her. 
And I had never, like, I had never had a relationship to that name. I didn't know anyone personally that had that name. Um, And he found it, you know, interesting at the end when he asked me, like, do you know what Maya means? And I I was like, no, I have no idea at all. And he was like, illusion. And I was like, oh my gosh, my higher self is an illusion, of course. (laughs) And it took me a really long time to ever consider, um, like over 10 years when people would ask me what my name was and I would say my birth name and I would say Stacy and I said it in a way where one of my friends said to me, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Was it a question? Were you like, Stacy? (laughs) Yeah, it it sounded like I wasn't really owning the name. And my, like, yeah, one of my friends is like, have you ever thought about going by a different name? And it was really interesting to claim that name, especially because that was the name that I was going by as a DJ. And I never really thought to go by it um, just in my day-to-day life. And we just decided to try it on. Like she said, how about a few of your close friends for two weeks calls you Maya? And I had this incredibly visceral experience where I felt like this giggly aliveness and vibrancy in my body when I was called that and I just love how it sounds like the my part of the name just oh, yeah. feels like someone's like claiming like like endearingly like like oh you're my and mm-hmm. then the ah uh, there's just something about it and yeah so I've been going by the name ever since That's wonderful it's so it's so musical you know even even to put together my light you know put those two things together it's so musical you know, I mean, the, the, um, what do they call them? Like stopping sound letters versus, you know, sort of starting sound letters. And, you know, you've got like letters that end with a t or, b, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. you're just flows Maya light. And then, you know, with the T at the end, I don't know. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's, I, it's it definitely, it's been hard to claim the second part of the huh. name. Just because I feel like this year, or not this year, but last year, with all the intensity of everything that has kind of come out in the quote-unquote conscious community um, around, like, in my perspective, um, narcissism and privilege around um, not being able to handle COVID in a way where people are being considerate of each other but kind of putting themselves first in a way Mm -hmm. um that because of that I've had a hard time with that part of my name because some of these people go under the umbrella of light workers and so it's been interesting to really um to really claim that without like knowing that I'm not bypassing but seeing how many people in that kind of realm are. <laughs> so it's been right. interesting because I'm like, I don't avoid the shadow. Like I don't, I don't uh, avoid the discomfort. Um, but I worry sometimes that like that part of my name um, is associated with some people that do. That's fascinating that, you know, there's a, um, uh, so 
to just get it biblical for one second. <laughs> you remember the part where I told you I used to be a rabbi. Well, there's this, uh, there, there's this piece where in the description of God in Genesis, they described this, uh, a light that you could touch, which is a really interesting kind of idea to me. You know what I mean? Where it's not like, you know, turning on a flashlight when it's like dark and watching how it illuminates a certain space, but the, all the darkness around is still kind of like in, in cringing. And you know that the second you shut it off, it's just the darkness is around again. It's a different sort of, it's really a different sort of thing. And I, you know, I honestly don't really know how to describe it, but, mm. uh, but I wonder, you know, I wonder if like being that type of light isn't more kind of akin to, you know, how you present at least, in, I mean, none of us can sort of be our most ideal all the time. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like in your most, in your most ideal. I wonder, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's funny, you know, starting this conversation, even before the press recording, I was like, yeah, we'll probably start by talking about this week and how crazy it is, but this is so much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <Like> a- <laughs> well it's what what like yeah I mean even just one of the explorations that has really gotten sparked up with the intensity of this this past week and everything that happened at the capitol building has been um narcissism and it's just been on my mind so much around like how how much codependency is so ingrained in our culture and uh yeah i've been unpacking a lot around that um just just watching everything that's been happening oh yeah you couldn't think of a more oddly symbolic challenge for all of humanity to face given the arc of history of the past 10 years and especially the you know 20 years especially the past uh 4 years in particularly you know what i mean I, I, you know the whole conversation about how the separations between private and public have become, you know, so much more kind of fuzzy given the role of things like social media. I mean, that old tired conversation already in terms of how social media has impacted the culture. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, everyone's got an opinion on this and they're they're all basically the same. So, you know, but like you, you really do see the impact on that. And here we are now, you know, probably going to be a year and a half, if not more in this crazy situation where we're like, social isolating while at the same time sharing more and more uh, idealized veneer of what we're trying to present in terms of our lives while Mm. like lacking in that and that like rudimentary human touch thing that is like so important and necessary and making really tough decisions to like stay away from family and stay away from friends in order to protect them when all you want to do is go towards them and in the meantime, you know, bringing them into your home in a way, in this like looking glass kind of way, that's like very strange and unnatural, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. what a crazy journey. And so, you know, that we have a president who's clearly like, you know, clinically narcissistic, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's so obvious as the day is long. Like, what's scarier? The idea that Trump is standing up there in like, knowingly lying to the American people about the election or Trump standing up there and believing every single fucking word that he says. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and there's something that I've been thinking about a lot just around how, um, 
I don't know how varied people's stories or perspectives or beliefs are, is this idea of how can we find common ground? How can we, like, that's just something that's been on my mind, just seeing like how, yeah, how different everyone's perspectives can be around what's happening. And Uh like how to have compassion and to cultivate a space of curiosity to be able to understand those differences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find um, maybe in an unhealthy way, sort of self-criticism is weirdly, oddly helpful. (laughs) Mm, Can you, yeah, elaborate more on that. So, um, so here's, I, I've like said this a few times in the pod and I, I wonder what your mindset is about this. I've, I voted for Biden and Harris, um, but that vote was like more a vote against Trump than it was for Biden. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really like Harris. I really don't like Biden. Um, you know, I, I just think he's another white man in his mid seventies who I actually do believe, you know, raped a woman. And so I don't think he should be president at all. And, you know, it's super, it's sort of super frustrating that that's the situation. And I'm so upset about it. I don't even remember why I started telling you this. Oh, I remember why I started telling you this. <laughs> because, because I heard liberal people say it's fake news. Mm. You know, and I, I'm, I'm going to like inclined to believe the victim person. Mm-hmm. And, and every, I, I didn't want to look too deep into that case, but I did. And it matches every pattern of what you typically see in those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, a person who like had some challenges got taken advantage of by a person of authority, like in the eighties, like when that shit happened all the time <laughs> and, and like it, it, you know, so it's really frustrating to me that like, here's a case of like, you know, obviously a thing that we'd be shouting, shouting from the mountaintops, you know, about if it was happening on the other side, but because it's on our side, people who I know and love have said, you know, fake news. And I'm like, oh, Lord, <laughs> oh, Lord. So if there's like any gateway to compassion, I, I'm finding it that way a little bit of like, you know, lots of people who we love and respect are susceptible to bias and bad information, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing the things that people want to believe and yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even, uh, yeah. So how, how have you like done it? Like how have you in this crazy time, like, and I do at some point soon want to just like back up to the beginning of your story, but we've got a nice thing going right now. It's like, <laughs> I have like four questions. <laughs> How how have you like I don't know fended off the darkness I guess like mm. you know I think one of the biggest things for me has been um, well I guess a few different things one has been really investing a lot of my time and attention into self care yeah and then. Uh, another part has been really solid boundaries. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's actually like something I've been writing about a lot lately has been like feeling the helplessness of not being able to 
to change someone else's stories, beliefs, values, or actions. And really how to, because I I feel like so much of my energy um, sometimes goes towards really, really wanting to to change people, (laughs) Um, especially because like I, oh, this feels like vulnerable to share, but like my, a lot of members in my family voted for Trump. And so, (laughs) and yeah, and on Thanksgiving, like I... There's always this really weird phenomenon that happens with my mom that as soon as I say I'm ready to get off the phone, she'll say something that's very emotionally hooking, which <laughs> oh, I I think there's something about transitioning that uh-huh. like, because it always happens. And in this case, she brought up like, you know, this was back in, the, you know, back in, in November, she said mm-hmm. something like, gosh, I really do hope that despite what has happened, that Trump still gets reelected. And I just like sat there and I, and I haven't said a lot about where I'm at politically because uh-huh. I know how dysregulated my family can be around certain topics. Yeah. But in that moment, because I had all of this like built up energy that really needed to go somewhere, I just like kind of express myself in a way that I'm not proud of, but I was like, mom, you need to check your privilege. (laughs) And I was just like, and, but I, the whole thing is, and was the way that I expressed myself made it so hard to actually be received and understood. And I wasn't giving any understanding and it, but it's, it's so hard because they're like, I felt when, when she said that, um, and I really took it in, I felt this contraction in my heart. Like I felt hurt and I like felt this, like, like, Oh, you're a woman. How can you like, how can you like, what? I'm, I'm like, I, I'm like, not just privilege, but let's talk about ignorance. And, <laughs> yeah. and so it's, it's so, it's been this like thing for, for myself personally is, what does that mean to find common ground? And when, when is, where is the line of like, like how much energy do I really want to invest and how can I like express myself in a skillful way where I'm not acting righteous and right. Oh, and it's so challenging. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when, um, so that just to make it even here. So the conversation with, uh, uh, someone who I love about, you know, the whole fake news business, honestly, that was, that was my mom. <laughs> to draw the oh. There's so many parallels between what, like what you said just now resonated with me so hard. We're so far up each other's alley. We're getting mugged at this point. We're like straight up handing our wallets over to somebody. <laughs> That's how far up each other's alley we are at this point. Because A, that was my mother. And my reaction was to be like, I'm going to hang up the phone and I want you to go and look in the mirror and I want you to say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I Oh my gosh. I, I will say what was really fascinating uh, about yeah. this conversation that I had, because I was on a group call and my brother was there as well. And my brother voted for Biden for a similar reason as to what you shared, which is also yeah. in resonance with me. And yeah. in my in my family system, we have a pattern. And that is when like a difference comes up and we get dysregulated, which 
everyone on that phone call got so dysregulated. At one point, my brother thought I was talking at him. He was like, are you talking to me? And I was like, no, no, no. Um, but I realized like our pattern is when we get to that place of dysregulation, we're talking at each other. We can't hear each other. And there is no common ground. There's just the disconnect. And then usually what happens is it escalates to a point where one of us hangs up. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I I said, can we slow down? And this was such a big deal because I've never done this with my family before. I was sure. like, can we slow down? And uh, because my mom wanted to get off the phone. And I said, can we just stay on the call and just down regulate together and like, like just try to shift the pattern so that we're not just like actually disconnecting even more. Um, And we did it. We were able to stay on the phone. They heard you. They heard you. And they, they responded positively to that. And y'all stayed on the phone and worked it through. Yeah. I mean, we didn't continue necessarily talking about the same (laughs) conversation anymore. I mean, we basically like, I, and I, and it's interesting because I'm like, am I bypassing by shifting out of this? But I, w- I was just like, no, 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 we're too dysregulated. <laughs> and so I'm like, let's try to modulate by like shifting focus. Uh-huh. And then, and then like I reached out to my mom, um, like several days later and she was really like, she couldn't hear. I was just sharing about things that were going on in my life and just saying that I've been really depressed and, um, she couldn't hear anything that I had shared, she just like said in like one sentence, something like, I'm still waiting for an apology. And I was just like, Oh, "Oh." (laughs) and I was like, I was like, okay. So I'm like, without going into the content and why I think I'm right for my perspective, (laughs) I'm like, what can I, what, what kind of humility or vulnerability can I show so that we can come back into connection because I do think we have a huge difference in values, but I also like don't want to spark up shame um, by, by talking about something that I think I'm right. And she clearly thinks she's right. And so it, it, it was really like, I, I, yeah, it was (laughs) really challenging because like I wrote out, cause this was all like, she sent what she did. Like I sent her a voice message cause I prefer connecting where she could hear tonation. Yeah. Um, and she just responded with like a text and I was just like, I noticed myself wanting to respond. Um, like I wrote out a whole text and I, I was like, Oh crap. I'm like, I'm, I'm about to talk at her right now. I'm about to like launch into why I didn't do anything wrong. And I had to like really slow down and remember that like the only, the only way to really move through a disconnect is to show like to make a vulnerable statement and to make an I statement and to, in my family system, like we, all of us tend to communicate our values and beliefs from a place of righteousness and judgment of anyone that has a difference. And that stems from just like really deep, like insecurities about, you know, like being with someone else's differences. And so, oh, it has definitely been a really deep unraveling process to figure out what would be 
how can I find common ground? And yeah, <laughs> it was, it, yeah, it's an interesting ex- experience and just something that I've been trying to navigate just because I'm like, when is it, when is it worth it to really get understanding? And also, can I give understanding? And because connection is not just about me being expressed and received a certain way, but also trying to understand the other side. Because I know my side and I really like have a lot of compassion for where I'm at. And, um, but I'm, I'm not showing up in that way sometimes just because it like, I'm like, what can I say in that? Like, yeah, for that disconnect. And I said, I felt really, really hurt um, and really contracted when you said what you did, especially like right at the end of the conversation. (laughs) I'm like, I didn't know how to like, like just, you know, not engage with that. Um, (laughs) And yeah, it's, yeah, it's an interesting dance to navigate um, those kinds of things. It's, it's a, it's really amazing that you put it like that, that it's an interesting dance to navigate because as you were talking, you know, what you were really reminding me of was the feeling of what it's like to be, first of all, a personality type like mine. And I'm wondering if we have the same personality type because ever since I was a kid, I felt like sort of the emotional DJ of the room where, you know, when I, when I enter a room, I, I sort of have figured out how to read it and then how to adjust it to move it to a more, you know, to put it sort of, you know, in a way, a more comfortable space for me, right? <laughs> Which mm-hmm. might be selfish, but it also so happens that a more comfortable space for me is also a more comfortable space for everybody. <laughs> if that, if that makes sense to you. And, you know, only once in my life have I ever had a chance to play music for a party and to sort of like watch what that's like in terms of I'm going to do this song next and it's going to have this impact on the room and look at how it lights it up. Look at how it affects this group versus that group. Look at how it sort of makes the move happen, all this stuff. And it felt amazing. But what I've been really contending with right now is that just because I have that ability doesn't give me the ability to, you know, change people's mind about shit or to like really help them to make the right decisions for themselves as hard as I've tried to do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like really, really a lot of my emotional work recently in therapy has been letting go of that. Like, no, I can't change this person's mind to make a different decision, even though I know that they're making a mistake. And this is everything from political stuff to like personal stuff, you know, and how to come to terms with that is like really really hard so yeah man we are so far up each other's alley (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's something about like really being able to for for me with what you're describing it's been how to be with the discomfort of watching someone make decisions that I wouldn't make and to feel the impact of their choices especially if it's interpersonal um right and to, to really surrender to the reality that um, they have their own personal sovereignty and I need to honor that. Um, and it, it, yeah, that I don't have control. And 
there's been a shift for, for me that I'm still trying to integrate because it's so hard sometimes to watch different people. Like I was in a relationship recently with someone who was an alcoholic and had a ketamine addiction. And it was really hard to surrender to the fact that like, I can't make his choices. Like that's gotta like him sobering up has to be what, what he wants. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's interesting to like be with the discomfort of seeing people who are making choices that are, having such a strong impact on not just their life, but then also my life. And to, to, I mean, and that's why like the idea of, okay, I need to take space or I need to do self care stuff. Like how those, like I could only control what I choose and how much I invest in different connections. And it's so hard because it's like with family or with loved ones, it's like if their choices are having such a strong impact and I can't really change or influence those choices, um, I feel some level of like sadness in right. recognizing how much those choices impact my desire to want to connect. Right. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, that's not a big, it's, right. it's really uncomfortable and it, it's, and, Especially when there's attachment, you know, to like family or to like a partner, it, it's it's so hard to kind of let go and and let there be space. A hundred percent, one hundred percent. That's that's sort of where the dog is buried, right? That that kind of surrender, especially when you know that, like, yeah, theoretically, when you spit in the ocean, it does get deeper. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like theoretically. It does. Like it does. So there are things that can be done that do sometimes work in terms of making a difference, but typically for the big things, the, the influence is, is very, is very low. You know, I mean, it's spitting in the ocean. So it's such a, it's such a challenge. I love, by the way, that you use the word dysregulated, um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a word that I'm working actively to bring into my vocabulary when I talk about those relationships where this happens to me, you know, where, um, you know, where this happens in my life, where a person, you know, are making, is making choices or approaching their decision-making in a certain way that I know is incorrect, that I know is causing damage and I can't do anything about it. You know, I, 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 I'm learning to use the word dysregulated because it helps me to kind of take the aggression out of it. Does that make sense? Instead of saying, mm-hmm. you know, um, such and such person was angry with me or such and such person was confrontational, you know, well, that requires that I respond in a certain way. And that puts the onus of responsibility on me essentially to even think about it that way. Whereas if I say, well, that such and such person was dysregulated in that moment, then it's sort of like I'm out of it and I can choose to interact with it, you know, or not, but, but from a much more sort of centered perspective, I guess, in a way. So I I love that word for that reason. And then the other reason is that in Jewish mysticism, there's this concept that, you know, God is like in this symbiotic relationship with reality, basically. And, and God functions like a human body. So Evil is always there. It has to be there because bile is always there. But there are times where there's a great imbalance in God's body, which means that there's also a great imbalance then in reality, like in in just our day to day. 
And then, I mean, as gross as it is, you kind of think of moments in history like this is like, you know, God just has like a massive case of the shits, basically. It's just like diarrhea fucking everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, mm. basically. And, and that's the world that we're in right now, you know, where it's just, there's so much imbalance um, onto the, you know, onto the dark side of things that it's really, really, you know, tough to navigate because basically every direction you turn, there's something to be afraid of. Um, there's something that's pretty significantly, you know, anxious, like, you take everything away and just give us the environment as an issue. You know, like that's enough. Take the environment away, make it like just race relations. Okay. That would like be like all these things would be enough, but it's sort of everywhere. And so I think people get the feeling that we're like headed towards a breaking point. And then, you know, this is sort of like what we're surrounded by. So for me, it's like, you know, if someone asked me like, well, how do you keep the darkness out? The answer is like, a lot of times I just don't like, I, I really can't as hard as I try. It's like there and it's really hard to avoid. And mm -hmm. a part of it is like maybe saying, maybe I just have to face the darkness. I mean, there certainly was a reckoning for white America this year. And I didn't feel like I was going to be a responsible, I mean, Irish Jewish lineage, you know, um, very much a, a white man. I, I wouldn't be responsible if I didn't like, take heed to that reckoning and like do a real dark, deep search inside of me to find those racist corners that I needed to figure out and stop being part of the problem, you know? So that's been a part of the process the past few months, having to be indoors. I mean, all these things. So, you know, it really is like a constant battle that we're in and, yeah. you know, Actually, I don't know. Like, I had yeah. a reframe on depression that was really fascinating. It's like the first time I've heard this. Huh. Um, and it's, I, I, I have been like exploring this a little bit more. Huh. So they were talking, are you familiar with, so there's fight, flight and freeze, but then there's something called fawning. Um, huh. so fawning is, um, one of the coping strategies when dysregulated, which I think like from my experience and then also because I do body work and work specifically with the nervous system, I've been noticing that a lot of people because of the pandemic and everything that's been happening in the world, that people are operating from some form of low grade dysregulation. Um, and fawning because it's all the coping strategies come up with dysregulation and so one of the reframes of an article that I read talked about fawning, which is the highest functioning, like it's very high functioning out of the coping strategies, huh. um, but that it's being conflated with the word depression and that depression, if it actually is fawning, is that instead of it being, I don't know, like it viewed in a specific way as um, a lot of, there's a lot of different meaning or story behind what depression is, but it actually could be a safety strategy that is allowing our nervous systems to modulate the intensity of the lack of safety that we're experiencing. Oh, yeah. And, and I've been loving this like perspective and reframe just because, um, like they were saying that this, this, strategy of depression actually was typically supported 
um, if someone had like a very traumatic childhood and was, mm-hmm. or even in an abusive relationship, whether it was with a parent, which can often be the case, which is why we might like attract a partner that reminds us of that trauma because mm-hmm. it's familiar. <laughs> and so it's like that strategy could be depression and it, and to think of it as this fawning, like I'm, this is how I'm going to survive is by almost like having this high functioning numbness. It has been like, really like, that's why I really like the idea of tracking dysregulation and a lot of the self care practices that I've been doing because I was depressed so much of last year. Um, and then definitely this past week with everything that has been continually being unearthed, um, like I, I started dipping back into that space and I'm like, okay, I need to really be mindful of how much I'm on social media and how much I'm like taking in other people's experience because I feel so overwhelmed and I feel so unsafe in my own body that how can I create that connect? Because otherwise I'm collapsing and I could feel it in my body. And so there's something about this idea of tracking dysregulation that has been really supportive for me. And like the way that I've been looking at it as well is how to find a balance of, um, because we have so much sensory input, like how am I also doing practices that are going to be outputting and can I also modulate how much I'm taking in of what's happening in the world um, so that I can actually be with all the discomfort that's arising in me? Right. And so it's it's been interesting. And also something that you said earlier that I, I'd love to backtrack on is when you talked about a friend and just recognizing that they were dysregulated, what I think is also important to name is if someone that we're interacting with is dysregulated and they're escalating, then they usually have like, there's a nervous system field in the space. And so if they're dysregulated, that means I'm also dysregulated. Uh-huh. And so yeah. it's, it's been, so I mean, like, it's interesting because like things like nonviolent communication, um, it takes a lot to, to really, show empathy towards someone else when we're really wanting that, but how if we can really empathize with someone else and then they become downregulated, it will also help us downregulate, which is what is needed to actually have like a shared understanding. Um, But it's hard to want to do that when we're also escalating. And so I don't know. I was just thinking about all these things just because like, I had such a negative view of depression until I was like, oh, this is actually keeping me safe. Right. No, you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, fawning as a word is, is not something that, you know, I've sort of entered my lexicon in terms of, you know, how to describe my personal experience with depression. But what I can tell you is that you're absolutely right in terms of it, at least what my experience with depression has been, and this we do talk a lot about in therapy and I do a lot of thinking about is that it really is, a, it's, it's, we call it a self-harm thing, but what we don't understand is that the reason why it's happening is because we're actually trying to aid ourselves. You know, it's like, so I, 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 um, I've given my depression, my depressive voice a name. I call him Frank. 
and for, mm. and I, and I do that because it helps me to kind of disembody it and understand it, understand that it's not me. Uh, and Frank is a dick. He's a total dick. He says like really awful things, but the fucked up thing is that he says it because he loves me because he's trying to protect me from being hurt in a certain situation, you know, where it's like, if I can ha if I can feel a moment of anger, but I'm, I know I'm not allowed to feel that. And so I cover it up with, and by the way, anger is the thing that forces us to draw boundaries, right? Healthy anger. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. We draw that. It's like what we do and what, that's what you're supposed to do. But instead of feeling that anger and using that to inform the boundaries that I draw, what I, what I had done in the past was cover that anger up with an anxious thought and then cover that anxious thought up with a depressive thought. And then, you know, either know that that's enough and then essentially not deal with the thing, but be in this depressive space or start to straight up spiral which then leads to the self-harm and the suicidal kind of things. And so when people, like, for me at least, when people have said, you know, well, someone who commits suicide, someone who has suicidal thoughts, they do that because they don't love themselves. It's like, no, actually, counterintuitively, it's the opposite. The reason why you have those thoughts is because you do love yourself. Because at least for me, it's like, I, I want to stop suffering and I love myself. And so why wouldn't I, you know, have that thought to do that thing, right? I mean, that's like, kind of where that comes from. And so, you know, I think it's, at least in my experience, absolutely correct to think of depression and anxiety as a coping mechanism, because that's a hundred percent, at least for me, what it's always been. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah. All of this resonates. So, okay. I feel like this is the moment. <laughs> 40 minutes in. So we're like, where does your story begin? Like, at, at, you know, at what point does your sort of mental health journey start? And by the way, you, it's like, oh, really, the answer is the Big Bang, right? I mean, that's like where <laughs> that's like kind of where it's at. But, um, but besides that, like, where, where for you does it begin? Um, well, I mean, it depends. Are we talking about imprinting? Are we talking about when I started to recognize um, or reconnect to myself? Maybe it's just where you feel most comfortable talking about it or where you feel most inspired to talk about it today. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, I guess the thing that feels, um, yeah, I, huh. I'm like trying to figure out where it feels like a good place. So I was raised in a family that really, that a lot of emotions weren't normalized. Mm. Um, and so in my childhood, even when I cried, um, I would actually be given space rather than comforted because hmm. that's how low the emotional capacity of my parents were. And they, I also like, my mom told me a story once that um, she would hold, like try to hold me when I was crying but um, that I didn't want to be held was her story. And I was like, I'm not, I was a baby. Of course I wanted to be held. It was a lack of attunement. Right. And so I have this experience and reinforcement of whenever there was emotional charge, whether it was dysregulation or anger, that I would be sent to my room. And so it kind of taught me that for me, the only way to feel and experience my feelings was alone because otherwise I would be sent away and I would be rejected and I would be alone. So I started 
really having this pattern, which in attachment theory, they talk about it as avoidant tendencies. Mm -hmm. Um, So like my sense of safety for me to access my emotional discomfort is in space, Hmm. um, in my own space. And what I realized, you know, as an adult, especially learning about attachment theory is that is not going to be supportive for connection. Um, Right. Because the people that I would be attracting would be on the opposite side of the spectrum. And in regards to like where their safety was, their safety was in conflict being or moments of disconnect being resolved together. And so it really, a lot of my mental health journey has been about taking steps slowly towards my emotional discomfort. Um, because it was something that was so deeply programmed in me to, at all costs, avoid that feelings were conflict in itself. And so like, I like, it's interesting, because my brother and I talked about this a lot this year, just because um, my dog that my mom has been watching for the past eight years um, died. And it was the first time my brother ever heard my mom cry our whole life, he had never witnessed her crying. And we, I mean, it's so interesting that certain emotional pathways weren't modeled for us. And so for me, learning, learning how to access those feelings and then how to express those feelings has been like a whole process. And so I think a lot of my like mental health has been what, what has been, what is going to support me to, to connect to those parts of myself and then express them. Um, and yeah, it, I think one of the things that has really helped me is being out here in the Bay and Hmm. surrounding myself with people that are really normalizing feelings. Um, but it took me a while to really invest in those connections because it, it felt overwhelming to be around people who were owning their anger, who were crying in a public space. It just felt so uncomfortable that I felt squeamish. And I was like, I don't know how to be around this person. They're too much. I would push them away. Right. Um, and so that is actually something that I'm like really passionate about because I still do feel discomfort when I cry in front of other people. Um, And it took me a really long time to access my anger because I had this belief that anger was destructive because that's what I saw in my alcoholic father. Right. So it, it, like, I had to really distinguish between dysregulated anger and anger that was regulated um, because dysregulated anger was what I was exposed to. And that felt scary and um, not safe. And so I had to really access by working with a cranial sacral therapist hmm. and being in a deep down-regulated state to access those parts of myself. Because for me, my mental health has been impacted by the challenges of being connected to the vibrancy of my emotions and my aliveness and my body. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it, I mean, and from these places of like, you know, depending on where anyone's at in their their journey of unraveling and connection to themselves, like we're all kind of operating in different levels of 
dysregulation. It's, right. a, it's a spectrum, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, I, a lot of my, my process has been really distinguishing what safety means to me so that I could be connected to all the, the whole range of emotions and it means tracking my level of saturation, like kind of like this past week, like even though I've, I've been doing a lot of emotional work, even though I have different pathways and different people that I'm emotionally bonded to, um, it takes, it takes constant listening to recognize, okay, it's probably best that you get off social media and stop <laughs> reading posts about how this is impacting your loved ones right now. Yeah. Um, and like, what, okay, then what do I need to do? Like, would it be good to blast some really angry music and dance right now so that I can release everything that I just took into my body? Yep. <laughs> and so a lot of like, a lot of my mental health has been like, especially because I am so fascinated by the nervous system is one of the things that they talk about as far as being able to access regulation is um, one pathway is um, really being able to track input and output. Um, just because a lot of us, we, we, we do take in so much and then how to balance that out, um, through like different activities, um, like whether it's running or dancing or writing or creating or talking to someone like this, like this right now I'm releasing, and then when you share, I'm taking in again. Right. And so it's right. like how to how to find that that those those balances like that has those kind of pathways have been just so important for my mental health. And there there is no like I'm going to do so much unraveling work. Like no, it's like a daily practice to right. not just notice saturation, but also dysregulation. Like, am right. I escalating in in a conversation with my family right now? Can I slow down? before I escalate to a point where I'm now in survival. Right. Because man, like with what happened at the Capitol building, I just felt so, um, so much emotion, but also so much dysregulation mm-hmm. that I was starting to spiral in my mind. And it, it definitely, it took a lot for me to downregulate, but you know, I had to recognize that I was in that place because otherwise I'd become really engulfed in my thoughts yeah. rather than being able to witness them and be like, oh, wow, like I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm noticing I'm uncomfortable and I'm noticing the quality of my thoughts. It takes so much to be anchored consistently within myself to be able to hold all of that. And that's why I think like self-care practices are absolutely the most important thing, especially with everything that all of us have been through this past year. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Learning how to, learning how to, you know, find a way to, you know, regulate your own balance um, is sort of the key, this key skill that, you know, if you've been trying to sort of make your way through this year, through the past, you know, number of years, but this year, especially, you know, that's been the thing that everyone's kind of been utilizing. Clearly, like that's the, that's, that's the way that, you know, you sort of have to go if you're going to survive this emotionally and, and all that jazz. Where, how did, I have two questions. I want to start with one and I've got a follow-up. How, how did this kind of manifest in your childhood? You know, sort of before you were aware that, you know, 
that, uh, that you had these challenges, how did it manifest in your childhood? And then what was it about you and about your life that, you know, brought you to the place where you became aware of it? That's such an interesting thing for me, you know, how, how someone finds their way to true awareness of what's going on. So what was it for you? Like, how did it manifest before you were aware? And then how did you become aware of it? When you say, how did it manifest? Like, what do you, do you mean like, so like with me, for example, um, you know, my story in terms of, you know, the kind of emotional spirit that my parents created in the home is, um, and this is not to minimize it, but I do think it's a, it's a story that a lot of people our age kind of understand. And by our age, I mean, I'm 45, you know, so folks who were kind of born in the mid to late seventies, early eighties, I think a lot of us had parents where we had mothers who were kind of like highly emotional and giving maybe too emotional and giving in terms of how they, you know, cared for us in our childhood. And then fathers who were very unemotional and distant in terms of how they cared for us in, in our childhood. And so that creates a certain type of imbalance in terms of how we connect with people. And so I absolutely was the baby who you'd put me down and I'd start crying and you'd pick me up and I'd keep crying. You know, which wasn't to say that I didn't want to be held. It's just that I figured out early on that I wasn't getting exactly what I wanted or needed in that space. And not that I have any anger towards my parents. They did the best that they could, but also that's what happened, you know? And so early on in my relationships, like I don't ever remember being a part of a large group of friends, for example. I managed all of my friendships one person at a time. Because something about trying to find the love or care or attention or companionship that I needed, you know, it was, there were too many kind of, um, I don't want to, scars isn't exactly the right word, but I guess maybe wounds, right? In, in terms of not getting what you need, not getting what I needed to sort of get those to be able to take part in that kind of group setting like that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so like before I was aware that these were all attachment issues, that was how it manifested. And now because I'm aware, I understand that, look, I mean, there's a reason why I like became a rabbi is <laughs> because I didn't know how to fit in with a group of Jewish people. <laughs> so I was like, make me the leader, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I'll, just, I'll stand in front of everybody and this will be my role, which is a really lonely position, you know, in comparison to, you know, sort of where everybody else is. And I chose that because that was how I felt I could best relate to the people around me. And now that, you know, I'm not a rabbi and I have done the personal growth and, you know, I'm not done yet by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, years of therapy and thinking and really kind of struggling and engaging with this stuff, you know, I've come to a deeper understanding of how wonderful it can be to like give in to a group, you know, and to um, sort of love myself enough to not necessarily need like certain love responses from others, but to still be comfortable in a space where I can have a group of friends or, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well yeah, here, yeah. except to say that like what you're saying is really resonating with me. And as you can see, I'm, I'm on this journey too of trying to figure out like how to come to terms with all that stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it sounds in, in different ways, like remarkably uh, similar. Like my, my father was not 
emotionally available and continually like we would be in the same room but he would feel far away or like my parents were divorced um pretty early on because my dad was an alcoholic and my mom didn't want to repeat the same patterns that she had with a previous relationship right um so as soon as the drinking was very apparent she created space and my dad because he like was drinking to numb his emotions um like when I would, my brother and I would visit him every other weekend, he would usually just place us in front of a TV Um, or like the form of connection that we would connect through was through what I call like the push pattern. Um, It's a developmental pattern where it shows up as like judgment or criticism. And so it would be like this very intellectual, like I know better. And so we would just all kind of like intellectually, like word vomit at each other. Um, So that was like my connection to my dad was by like, you know, like dismissive jokes um, about other people typically like, Oh, that person's overweight, even though my father was overweight Um, or yeah, like just making very dismissive comments to diffuse emotional discomfort. And then with my mom, um, cause she got remarried um after my father and her had separated and the modeling that I had from her relationship that had a pretty big impact was that she had no boundaries. Um, So like she would always agree with my stepdad and would basically like, if there was any differences, differences were bad differences were conflict and were uncomfortable and to be, like avoided at all costs. And so what that would, would look like is if my stepdad wanted something, then it would always be yes. And me and my brother would also have to agree to whatever it was that he wanted. And so, um, it really impacted my voice and then Hmm. also my connection to my emotions, because again, like when any emotional discomfort would happen, um, I, I would be sent to my room to think about what I've done kind of energy. And so it really taught me that like there, like the, the imprinting I had was that it wasn't safe to cry. It wasn't safe to get angry. Anger was bad. It mm. was like, um, anger in itself was the conflict. Um, boundaries were not like you always, submit to the man. Um, and so there were, there were just so many things that really had me not prioritizing my needs, my desires, um, my edges, like what my limits were. Um, and then also that, like, I had a story that I was too much because I had feelings. And so my unraveling process has been learning how to soften into a space of receptivity because that was something that wasn't modeled for me. And that was like, was judged as, um, yeah, as, as too much, or at least that was the story that I took on because it always resulted in space and disconnect when, um, when it really wasn't about me and my feelings, but my, my parents' emotional capacity. Right. Um, And also, of course, their access to those feelings within themselves. And so what like what kind of had me waking up to those um, feelings was that about 
six years ago, um, I was starting to make friends here in the Bay more consistently, spending time with them. Um, two of my friends were going to CIIS um, for somatic therapy. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they were really into was attachment theory. And I had so much come up just hearing them talk about it. Like I, I judged it. I thought it was I, my dismissive avoidance side came out. I was just like, this is like, like even just the word attachment, because I had, I had made choices to be in quote unquote conscious spiritual communities because I was bypassing. Um, and so the idea of attachment when I was overvaluing non-attachment um, was really like just the word itself. I like wanted to move away from it. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> so I, I was trying to develop a relationship with someone in the community and we both had this like Ugh, response <laughs> to attachment. And I decided, okay, there's gotta be something here. There's a lot of sensation. Let's see what it's about. And I read this book. It was called Attached. Uh-huh. And I felt like. I felt like I was being called out Oh man. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, it was actually my journey around attachment theory that had me realize how much I both wanted intimacy. Um, and it was specifically with other people, but I mean, ultimately it was like, I really wanted to know those parts of myself right? because I, I really recognized that when I got to the Bay, I, and was practicing non-attachment, um, I would have very short lived, um, relationships and I felt really alone. Um, and so I was like, okay, there's something for me here to learn. And so that's kind of what sparked my, my journey around recognizing that I, really struggled with developing emotional bonds because I didn't really know how to access those feelings within myself. Um, right. 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 And I don't know. A lot of, a lot of my journey was also that when attachments would be formed, it was absolutely terrifying just because it, they, you know, they, those attachment bonds, um, ignite your early you know, attachment bonds. And so I would have this like irrational fear that if I were to reveal certain parts of myself that I would be pushed away. And so there was just so much fear to really not just accessing my feelings, but talking about them. And so for me, it had to be like, I really developed emotional bonds with friends first because those didn't feel as threatening as someone that I was being sexual with. Right. Um, and then also writing, writing, dancing, like for me, just experiencing my feelings, like as soon, and that's probably a big reason why I love to DJ and why my, my journeys on the dance floor are very emotive um, right. is because like that was a place where I felt like, as soon as I stepped onto the dance floor, if I had been avoiding any of my feelings, as soon as I started to move there, they would be, I couldn't avoid them when I was moving and dancing. And the Um, people who, people who care about you are going to understand exactly what you're expressing through those moves. And uh, if they're, you know, noticing, then uh, you're sharing, 
right? You're being vulnerable. You're opening yourself up to them in a really intimate, you know, in a really, really intimate way. Yeah. I mean, and, and I could still bypass on the dance floor. Right. Like I could just, I could just dance like, because the part of me that like was ingrained, which I think is very ingrained in this culture, um, it like not the ecstatic dance culture, but just like, um, like here in the U S is there's a big proponent of seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain. And so even on the dance floor, it was a practice to actually intentionally use it as a space to go into, um, the depths of my emotional experience, because I could just go into a flow state and bypass by just going into a pleasure state and just like, like, okay, how can I move that feels good versus like, um, like, okay, what's really deeply here. And am I just listening or am I trying to seek out pleasure even on the dance floor? Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. How, how did you, I mean, I totally like so much of that resonates with me. And for me, the catalyst of, you know, finally kind of, it was like, there were things that I sort of understood and knew in terms of what was going on and, and where the, the imbalances were in me, but I just tried to sort of deal with it until ultimately my back was against the wall. I mean, that's kind of where it was at for me. You know, it was mm-hmm. like kind of skating by and then my dad died and tragedies have a way like personal tragedies and also, you know, worldwide tragedies have a way of kind of peeling back the, you know, the roof, right? The walls, like the layers of things that are hiding because you just can't, you sort of can't hide it anymore. You know, it has to kind of come out. And that's what happened to me. You know, it was like, choose to face this or die. Like that's where it was at. Mm. So, and so I chose to face it because really I didn't want to die. You know, that's, that's really where the shift came for me. So like, I hear your story and you don't have to read that book and see it as a calling out and be receptive and then say, you know, actually uh, there are areas where I can change and know I can be so much healthier. And what I've been saying to myself for a while just isn't actually true in terms of what I need or what I want in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to say that at all. You still could have read that book and been like, fuck you. Fuck you guys. (laughs) Fuck I'm out of here slam it down and walk away. But something inside of you was like receptive to that voice saying, oh, this is right. And I have work to do. What was that? Like, how did you, what was that? Is that just something inside of you? Did it come up? Like, how do you explain that in terms of how you did that? I mean, a part of it was just really recognizing how, mm, I don't know how disconnected I felt to my emotions just by reading about it. Um, I guess uh, there were two catalysts in my life that were at like, they're like, were absolutely devastating to me. And I feel like um, for me, grief has been the biggest catalyst of my life. And there were two big losses that I had. And one of them was I had a friend commit suicide um, who was like the most generous person that I knew. Um, And I had no idea that she was struggling so much. Um, 
and just like feeling that loss because at the time I was also depressed and Mm -hmm. having suicidal thoughts. And so like a part of me also was like, wow, my friends wouldn't even know that that's where I'm at because I also can be generous and giving and show up in a certain way. And like, cause a lot of friends were like, why didn't she reach out? And I'm like, uh, (laughs) when you're in that place, it is so hard to express that. And so that really, like, really allowing myself to, um, like, I was already in that space. I went deeper into that depression and hopelessness and like, oh, I feel her pain. Right. And it makes me really even more hypersensitive to my pain because now I'm holding that pain as well. Right. And so that, like, really broke me open because it put me into um like overwhelm which is when i typically feel depressed it's from overwhelm right um and then i started to feel tired from feeling overwhelmed and then i started to get angry and then i started to feel sad and then all of a sudden something else happened which really really messed with my head for a while which is that like with how big of an experience grief is, I had so much more capacity after going through all the emotional waves that I started to experience joy, embodied joy for the first time in my life, which was very confusing. And it was just like this experience of really letting in the pain and suffering And not trying to push it away, which is what for me depression was at the time was like, I was pushing away, like, don't have those thoughts, those thoughts suck. And like, like, I instead, like, it became more normalized by someone in my life. um, Also being in that place. And I was like, I'm not gonna fight this anymore. And as soon as I stopped fighting what I was feeling, I broke open. Like, um, and that happened one other time. And that was I mean, not to say I am a lot more in touch with grief, um, but it happened in another way that was really a game changer for me because I have more of a tendency for like avoidant tendencies. And I'm typically almost always the person that leaves a relationship. Um, I had an experience of building a life with someone for two and a half years where we were going to start a family, which is something that I'd never really wanted to before. Cause I couldn't imagine being in a long-term relationship to ever <laughs> go there. Right. Um, and then this person, because I had such a hard time accessing my emotions, um, just felt overextended oh, and he God. ended the relationship. Oh, God. Because he, and I had not ever really been with, that form of rejection because in the past, even the few times I had been broken up with, I was in my like dismissive avoidance side. I didn't really like value attachment. I was just like, yeah. fine, whatever. I don't really care. I didn't really care in the first you, place. You manifested it in the first place. They broke up with you because you made it happen. <laughs> uh, I was like, I didn't really, I was like, whatever. Like I wasn't really that into them and they could, I could probably find hundreds of reasons why yeah. they weren't good enough for yeah. me based on my own insecurities. Yeah. And so, so when this happened, it really kind of, it forced me, not forced me, but like I got so low and was so depressed and was almost drowning in my insecurities. And I really was unpacking 
you know, all of the shame that came up because I had so much of it that was arising from having someone choose to walk away. It ignited my father stuff of like, does, did he ever care? Um, (laughs) And it just like, it kind of forced me to be with the things that I really didn't love about myself. Right. And I think that was honestly the biggest catalyst to, to my growth is having someone have a boundary with me. Cause I was really, I got really like, I, people that have avoidant tendencies tend to be actually really, really skilled at boundaries, but they don't, they're not very good at receiving those boundaries. No. (laughs) So, so for me, like it was a powerful experience to have someone finally access their no, but the way that they access their no was by saying no to the relationship because, because for them, their pattern was that they had no boundaries. Right. Um, And so their no was to just, to leave. And it kind of like forced me for the first time to really um, feel that rejection and to, to really like see all the parts of myself that came up in grieving the loss of not just um, having them in my life, but also the loss of like what we, what I thought we were creating. And so it had me like really recognize what it is that I wanted Um And then also all of the anger I had for the ways that I had overextended or that I wasn't authentic to myself and I had abandoned myself. And so it kind of woke me up to all of these parts of myself that I had previously not really um, had before just because like of my investment that I had in that relationship. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I'm, constantly amazed like the resonance in this conversation (laughs) (laughs) i mean this this is exactly what my experience has been in terms of that you know where like those moments where you know there's been a breakup where i've kind of kind of manifested it because i was in a place where i sort of wasn't caring where the relationship was going one way or another to those moments where i like really really care about where it goes but i'm not seeing the person i'm with doing the things that I think would be right for them and right for us, you know? And so like ultimately end the relationship along those lines and then, and, and then the opposite end where it's, you know, in a relationship where I'm like, yeah, this is the one, this is it and everything else. Then they end it for whatever reason they are, you know, they do it. And it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's so challenging and difficult because it's like, well, why and how, and you know, (laughs) Like, how did you come to this decision and everything else? And then ultimately you have to figure out how to look at yourself and find your own personal growth. And, uh, um, you know, it's not everyone who does that. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't think for a lot of people, really, really the ego gets in the way and they don't have the opportunity to take those moments and sort of figure out how to learn and grow. Um, It's interesting in, in my therapy recently, you know, one of the, weird triumphs that I've experienced. So I was in a two-year relationship after I left. I was married. I have two kids. I separated from my ex back in 2017. Uh, The divorce was finalized, you know, sort of shortly thereafter on the timescale of how divorce happens. And I then was in a two-year relationship, which ended in February. And then I started online sort of app dating 
the second the pandemic started, which was like outstanding timing on my part in terms of wanting to connect with people that are <laughs> most emotionally stable, you know, <laughs> it's a good romantic time to like go dating somebody. Like it's a very, very strange thing to, to try to do. But, you know, I, I, so I've had a couple connections and I did have one connection where I was like, holy shit, this is the one. And then she ended the relationship and I, you know, and in my mind, it was really out of nowhere. And it was one of those things where it was like, why did this decision happen and everything? And, and I, I was like off my rocker for a little while, you know, just so um, turned upside down from the whole experience of it. And ultimately the two things that I've kind of pulled of it, pulled from it are, it's like one, you just have to give in to the fact that people are going to make their own choices, even when you can't understand them, you know, and that's a really tough thing to sort of realize but it's been a really healthy thing for me to realize. And then the other piece is, you know, really sitting in my emotions, like almost putting my shoulder. And so it's like, don't just cry, write poetry. You know what I mean? Like, don't just, like, don't just be upset, like really be upset. You know, if, if you're going to cry, do it on the beach, right? Be dramatic, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I can do it that way. And I did, and I did. And it was really hard and really challenging, but you know what I didn't have? Suicidal thoughts. Ah, like not even a one, you know, like not even like a one level, just like, I'm just going to go home and kill myself. Like not even like the most basic level that used to be a way of life. Like those things didn't happen. And the reason why they didn't happen was because I, I kind of put my shoulder into it. You know what I mean? Like I was like, be in your body, feel the sadness, like allow it. My, my therapist was even talking about like different types of cries. She was like, if you're crying, and it's like your throat is super tight and you just feel the tension right there in your throat. She's like, that's an anxiety cry. That's not the cry that you want, you know, because that's the cry that kind of comes along with the types of thoughts that are just like, I'm always going to be alone. There's no one out there for me. You know? <laughs> like, all this shit like that versus the type of cry that's like the longer kind of drawn out, like coming from your stomach where, you know, you're, you're not feeling the tension in your throat. It's just really coming from the pit of your stomach. That's, the type of cry that's saying, no, this was something really wonderful. It felt great. And now it's over because this person didn't want it to continue, you know, and really putting my shoulder into that narrative, actually as painful as it was. And in a weird way, it was so much more painful than just straight up being suicidal, you know, but mm. it was obviously the much more healthy way to do it. And now, you know, a couple months later, I'm finding myself you know, letting the light in, in a way that I wasn't able to before, but I think I still wouldn't be able to now if I didn't deal with it in the way that I did. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you really embraced the, like the, the vulnerability of, of letting in and letting go, which oh, is, yeah. there's so much vibrancy to that. Like for me, like when I get to a suicidal place it's usually I'm I'm collapsing I'm and I'm struggling like I'm really fighting what I'm feeling yeah yeah that's exactly right no me too that's a hundred percent me too you know when when I've avoided it is when then the brain starts spiraling you know it's like there there is this doctor who wrote a he wrote like a book about uh back pain where there was like a rash of people who were having like lower back pain and the theory was the reason why people are having a ton of lower back pain is because there's now medicine you can take for ulcers. That's why. So it's just like a move to the back, you know, <laughs> like your body is like trying to tell you to stop. 
and it can't give you ulcers anymore. So now it's going to give you lower back pain. And if that doesn't work, then it gives you depression because you have to stop, you know, and that's just kind of like how, you know, how it was for me. And, mm. you know, it was in finally like saying, let me just go ahead and face the pain that I was able to sort of more deal with it in kind of that, that healthier way. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, that's a hundred percent what it was, but you know, it was really hard. And it's not to say there weren't moments where I'm like, you know, in a panic attack and really, really having those thoughts of I'm always going to be alone. You know, I had that thought just today, you know, <laughs> just like, yeah. oh man, I'm just going to be alone forever. But then you, but then it's like, okay, well, what was I feeling right before I thought that? Um, okay. That's what that was. So it wasn't that I actually had that thought. It's just that I was having this anxious thing to kind of get me past what the authentic feeling was, which was something different, you know? And then it's like, well, what's the activity I need to do to shift gears here? And so for me, a lot of times it's getting in my body. You know, I'm, I'm a music person too. There's a whole conversation about music for me and you to have at some point, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, one of my tattoos is a treble clef on my left wrist. So yeah, there's a whole conversation about music for me and you to have at some point, but I, I, um, I'll put music on, you know, or I'll just like plank for like 30 seconds. Or, like, <laughs> swimming is my, is my number one sport. And so that's like an all encompassing sport. Cause not, not only are you getting like the full body exercise, but you're getting the rush of cold water over your skin and all that mm. stuff. And so really, really getting in my body. But a lot of times it's as simple as how am I holding my feet right now? You know? If I do a thing where if I'm feeling anxious and I'm trying to hide it, I'll sort of put my feet in a really uncomfortable, unnatural position. And for whatever reason, that takes my mind off of the thought that I'm having. Or I'll get like stress hiccups, you know, where <laughs> mm. that happens to me all the time. Or if I have a hic- I don't get normal hiccups. If I hiccup, I'm like, okay, what was, what did I think just right now? Like, where was <laughs> my mind right now? I feel like, uh... <laughs> I've been, there's been this, I, I, so I, like, as I mentioned earlier, I was in a really toxic relationship recently and I've been doing a lot of like research around codependency and, um, just trying to do my part because I can't control this other person. Mm -hmm. And one of the methods that, that I read about was something like if you're spiraling is to find, just find five things in the room. Just yeah. find, find, it was, it was like five things in the room and then four things you're feeling like mm-hmm. sensations, whether it's the temperature of the room or the surface that you're touching or like it just to anchor you back in the present time. Cause so much of our, our pain is not just situational. It's really, really deep unfelt past trauma that we're still trying to integrate that we start Mm re-experiencing hence the thought spirals so I like what you were saying because it sounds like you're just anchoring anchoring yourself into your experience more oh yeah versus like your thoughts about your experience oh yeah a hundred percent my since uh since going on quarantine and I see a therapist once a week and since going on quarantine you know we obviously moved to you know um uh, like zoom, zoom sessions, basically. And it's one of those things, it's not zoom. It's a, it's a thing that she uses that's like sort of there for therapists. And it, it has a little kind of side picture, a little tiny square of your face. Look, you know, so you kind of see what you're doing, but the bigger, the bigger screen is her face, kind of how zoom does that mm-hmm. sometimes. And I find that as a defense mechanism, sometimes when 
I'm getting sort of more vulnerable, I'll actually start watching myself talk about what it is that I'm talking about in that, in that moment as a way to like disembody. And she'll see me kind of like look askance and then she'll say, you know, what are you looking at? And I'm like, well, I'm looking at myself so I can not feel like I'm actually in my own body. And she's like, okay, so you're feeling anxious. Let's, let's go ahead and find our space again. And in that moment, that's when I'm, you know, suddenly think, you know, that's when I'm, that's when I'm trained myself to say, well, how am I holding my feet? How am I holding my shoulders? How's my breathing right now? Where's my heart rate? You know, am mm. I feeling myself in my seat or am I having this sort of emotional out of body experience? And it's healthier for me to just get myself back into my body. So you're hundred percent right. And when it gets, mm. and what's interesting is, you know, I would much prefer to kind of deal with the spiraling in that way to like catch it early enough where I can, you know, put myself back in my place and, feel where I'm feel where I am and then, you know, breathe my way through it and get back to a place of more regulation than, you know, what it is that I have to do when the spiraling is really bad, when there's just sort of no way that you can do it. And that is, I do a technique now where I take um, ice out of the fridge and I put it in a bag and I put it just on my face. <laughs> mm. And it's a thing I learned in therapy. And what it does is it causes the diver's reflex where your brain just has to go, oh, fuck, cold. And then, you know, <laughs> and then like pull all your blood into your inner organs, you know, like um, just has to change gear. And so you're really rebooting yourself in that in that moment. And that's what I do when it's like very, very bad. But uh, otherwise, it, it really is like trying to be as fully present in the space that I can be. And it's tough. You know, it's really tough because and I've said this a bunch of times on this pod, but, you know, dealing with a mental illness is trying to fix the machine inside the machine as the machine. That's like what you're trying to do. <laughs> and, mm. and there's like almost nothing more challenging than than um, consciously building neural pathways. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, you- Yeah planets really you can't really create new neural pathways unless you're feeling and accessing safety or comfort because new neural pathways are so uncomfortable <laughs> so fucking uncomfortable so uncomfortable and the old ones are so wide and expansive oh yeah we've taken those trails so many times it's yeah just so effortless to go back even if they're not serving us yeah they're eight lane fucking highways is what they are. They're, they're enormous. And it's so much easier just to go down that path. And it feels so natural. And it's so difficult to just be like, okay, no, 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 then we're going to take this exit (laughs) (laughs) right here. And we're going to go the slow route, you know? Yeah, I, there is, there's another practice that I've been doing that has been like, so supportive, just because like, so I'm, again, I'm reading this book on codependency. And one of the things that they say is something, something along the lines of more body, less story. Yeah. Um, but I also think that there's something about the stories that is really fascinating. And so I've been doing the the process. I don't know if you're familiar, but the artist's way. Hmm. Um, I, I know it sounds familiar to me, but tell me, tell me what it is. Well, so there are... Every week they have exercises, but one, the consistent practice is what's called morning pages. And it's that you write, you fill up three pages where you, you don't censor yourself. You write anything and everything that comes to your mind and you basically go into a flow state and it has to be handwritten, which I'm sure correlates to some part of the brain. Um, 
And like what I've been experiencing, cause I've been doing it for almost three weeks now is that it with not censoring myself, I'll see all the stories. I'll see the judgment. I'll see the resistance. I'll see, I'll be able to like write it all. And by writing it all out, it's almost like this ego dump that really like by allowing myself to, to not just have those thoughts, but instead of like pushing them away, just writing them out, I've noticed that it really helps me to be um, one to embrace the connection that I have to these stories and to see them clearly instead of just like being engulfed in my story and taking those preconceived ideas and having them influence my experience. Um, And so it's it's almost like I'm seeing and discovering parts of myself and I'm getting those things out of the way because it's like that flush writing tends to be um, where all the creative blocks are. So if I'm like, if I'm judging the hell out of a friend for seeing their addiction to closure in a relationship that the person's emotionally unavailable. It's like, Oh wow. Like why, why do I have so much judgment of that? Oh, am I really upset at myself for also having that addiction? And so it's been, it's been one of the most supportive practices that I've ever done. And it sounds to me like when I was thinking about that a lot, when you were sharing about your, your process around um, this relationship that, um, transition this year that you were like, cause I don't know. There's something about to actually be able to be in creative expression. It means to me accessing the vibrancy of our aliveness. And so I just, yeah, there's something about this writing practice that I find myself writing more, or I find myself being able to articulate things so much more clearly, especially because of this whole, like, there's no censor. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just thought I'd share because it's been such a, a potent tool for me that I imagine I will, I will continue doing way more beyond the three month commitment that <laughs> it, that it is. For sure. For sure. It's funny that that was writing was a game changer. And for me, you know, I I ended up typing a a journal. That was like one of the things that I've kind of used to sort of go back to. And I've been doing it throughout the throughout the whole pandemic experience of like sometimes it's weeks before I, you know, between sitting down and writing, sometimes I'll write for a few days in a row. When I first started, I I wrote every day in a row for hours and hours and hours and hours, you know. Um, if for no other reason that it was just forcing time to fat, to pass a lot faster, like it, I'd sit down on my computer and just start typing and I would do it in that non-judgmental kind of, I'm just going to type whatever I'm not thinking in terms of editing. I'm not thinking in terms of any kind of literary flourish. I'm just writing what's coming up in my mind. Even if it's writing about the fact that I have nothing to write about, that's what I'm <laughs> writing about. You know what I mean? Like, like doing it like that. And before I knew it, I was at like 70,000 words, basically (laughs) ridiculous, you know, but it has been a really interesting thing. But what I haven't done is sat down and kind of said, even without anything that's like boiling up to come out to just write anyway, like what I've done is sort of waited till it's come to a boil and then sat down and and wrote and gotten out that stuff. And what I do find, I, I have this like, weird fear towards it that like facing the thoughts are going to sharpen them like a sword and make them more potent. 
And yet my experience has generally been writing the thoughts gets them out and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. But I, but for some reason, you know, I still like, as you've said that, I'm like, yeah, I should do that. But I'm like, no, I don't want to sharpen the thoughts. You know, <laughs> I don't like the chocolate. <laughs> That's never been your experience, dude. <laughs> but it's that, crazy. Right? It's crazy the amount of resistance that comes up to doing something I that know. like threatens the ego. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. And one thing I still haven't done is I've never gone back, not even a single paragraph to reread it. That's one thing I've never done has gone back to reread it. And I'm, I'm curious if I should, I'm curious, like what the reaction would be if I did, you know, Mm. do you do that? Do you reread it after you've written it? What do you do with it when you're done writing it? I mean, for the past three weeks, I've only looked back once. And that's because one of the things that I explored was around codependency. And I really loved what came. I wanted to find a few sentences that came out. And when they came out, I was just like, whoa, that needs to be shared. Um, But other than that, no, I'm, I mean... They actually recommend in this practice not to go back and definitely not to share the morning pages with anyone else. Yeah. So, I mean, for the most part, I, I don't, but I noticed that like, yeah, I mean, if there is something that I really want to share or distill, um, I'll, uh, whatever it is that I wrote, I know that it's there uh-huh. within me. And so I'll, that's usually when I type. I think there is a difference between the part of your brain that's activated for writing versus typing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a pacing thing too. So I wonder if it becomes less connected to the body or if, I don't know if there's a, like a different, yeah, I wonder what the difference would be. Um, yeah. It's fun. It's, I think that when I write by hand, it can't, I, like you said, I, I can't keep up with my thoughts writing by hand. So I'd have to really slow down my thoughts. And then the other piece is that just my, my finger muscles and my wrist, yep. chops, you know, <laughs> like it's just chops, you know, like, I, so I, I, I played saxophone for a bunch of years and, uh, I was in a ska band in college and, um, which is like the most nineties thing anyone can ever say. <laughs> <laughs> Like that is like the most nineties thing anyone can ever say. But, uh, but, uh, but I was, and when we used to practice a lot and gig a lot, like my chops were great. You know, I could play 45 minutes in a row and only towards the end feel, you know, my, my lungs and my, the separation between like my throat and me pushing the air out, start to get tired, you know? And then I didn't play for years. And then my first year of rabbinical school, we put together like an ad hoc klezmer band for one of the holidays and I grabbed mm. a tenor sax and I, all I had to do was like vamp on the upbeat for like a couple of minutes, you know, <laughs> for like a klezmer thing. And within a few minutes, I, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I couldn't, like my throat was just like out. So yeah, it's, I mean, it has been decades and decades since I've done anything besides like taking notes at meetings and uh, stuff like that by hand to sit down and write three page three pages in a row, it would take me like a few months just to build up the chops to be able to do that in the first place. Probably. Did you find that? I mean, it's only been three weeks and I don't feel like the muscles have developed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we watch like your handwriting go from like perfect to like, you know, advanced stage. Like, <laughs> like, 
about I mean, to die, you know? Because I know that I am not going, because like for the most part, I, I know that I'm not going to read it. One, my handwriting looks terrible because I'm just like, <laughs> I just want to write as quickly as I can to capture what's moving through me. And then also, oh my gosh, there are times where I'm like, oh, that was actually the wrong like word or the spelling, but I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> move on. Just move on. <laughs> I'm like, keep just going. keep going. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, I'm hoping that like the muscles will develop just because three pages and I'm using pages that aren't lined and my, my writing is very <laughs> yeah. small. It just, yeah, it takes like a half hour minimum a day um, huh. just to do it. But it, it is seriously like, I mean, I, I, that's why I actually pushed the time to 11 is because I needed to make sure I had enough time to really dive into my writing practice. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Do you find like, if you look, but you did only a little bit of looking back on it, but when you did, did you find that your handwriting changes in a single sitting you know, based off of sort of what it is that you're talking about or thinking about in that moment. So like my, my grandparents were art collectors and my grandfather taught me to look at art. And one of the things he always asked me to ask when, when to ask myself when looking at a painting, for example, is how does the artist feel about the subject? And it's a really interesting question because you can often tell based off of the work, you know, what they do with their paintbrush is revealing in terms of how they feel about the thing or the person or the scene that they're painting, you know, if they're very rough with the scene and you have to often get your face right up to the painting to tell how rough they were with the scene, then you can feel how they, how they feel about it. You you know what I mean? Like there's this, there's an artist named Lucien Freud who is uh, Sigmund's, one of Sigmund's grandkids. And Mm -hmm. um, he's a, he's a really famous artist, a British artist. And he famously jabs at people's faces when he draws, he draws mostly people, only people. And, and there's a different texture to the paint, to the person's face than there is to the rest of the painting. The rest of the painting is mm. almost irrelevant to him. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. It's there and it looks great, but it's not. And sometimes there's humor in the rest of the painting and symbolism as well, but he doesn't spend as much time there as he does on the face itself. When you look at the face, he's jabbing at the faces and you can really tell how he feels about his subject. A lot of times there's, there's some disdain there in terms of how he, it might, he might still love the subject and often famously he's very close friends with them, but he's painting these people in moments of like disdain or sorrow or whatever, you know, and, um, and it's pretty interesting in terms of how you do that. I wonder, do you see that in your handwriting? <laughs> no, not really. Like, a whole um, long question for a no. <laughs> well, I mean, because like my word, my word choice does that. Like, oh yeah. Like I'll get, I'll yeah. I mean, I one, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty skilled at writing how I feel. Yeah. At this point, but also like if I don't even want to, yeah, it's I can always tell where more sensation is because, um just to like see my dismissive avoidant come out where I'll just be like, fuck that. or <laughs> Like, and I'll be, and, and I'll just, yeah, I'll be like, wow. So you've got a lot of feelings about that one. <laughs> or like, yeah, if I find myself making jokes in my writing, that's like one of my, like one of my imprinting, like imprinted patterns is to like, when there's discomfort, you make a joke about it. And so, <laughs> right. I mean, for me, it's more noticing like, like 
my relationship to my experience. Um, if I'm not like quite being like very articulate around how something's making me feel. Um, but yeah, I haven't noticed really a shift in the, the handwriting other than like, more like that I'm so impassioned in what I'm writing that there's a lot of spelling error. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't even care to go back. Like I just needed to keep going forward. <laughs> <laughs> and as it, you know, and even like the use of certain, you could say, you know, one type of descriptive word, which even sounds a certain way or another word, which is, you know, synonymous if not nearly synonymous but even just sounds something way different you know there's something about the word despicable you know <laughs> that like <laughs> feels a certain way when you write it down there and if you choose that one instead of just like malevolent you know which almost sounds great, you know? <laughs> oh, goodness. That, that's really fun and interesting did you ever get into the the beat poets you know like the jack kerouac's and alan ginsburg's of the world no. So K- Kerouac wrote On the Road on one, his, his most famous book, on one long piece of paper. Mm. And didn't have like no breaks. Just, and there's famous pictures of him in his room, just like surrounded by this long line of just paper that just winds around and goes up to the ceiling and down the wall and over and on everything and all that stuff. And he's just writing on one long, continuous piece of paper. <laughs> Mm. what an amazing what an amazing <laughs> approach to sort of writing like that you know I, I i love like the idea of creating different sort of environments do you do any mental preparedness before you sit down and write do you have like a meditation practice first and then write? oh no no i mean that's what i think is the most like i mean i've played around with different factors like having coffee before writing <laughs> or like um, like taking a shower is what I almost always do before starting my day. And oh, so yeah. like, what would it, what would it be like to sit up like after waking up and immediately start writing without <laughs> even being that fully awake? And I think that like the biggest, the biggest thing I've noticed is when I am half awake, it's more like there's more vulnerability because there's even less censoring yeah. when I'm not in my awake mind yet. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I have I have messed around with a few like different things like coffee, um, just to see like how that influences the quality <laughs> of my thoughts. What have you discovered? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, my handwriting really suffers after <laughs> drinking coffee. <laughs> the pacing is very different, and then also there's like a fieriness to what I'm expressing. Yeah. Um, like a very like young, like masculine, like, <laughs> okay. Like sentences might be shorter. Um, I mean, sometimes they could be longer, but they like, there's so much more like, I don't know, directness and bluntness with, with talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. I, I, I once had someone say to me, like, I was so tired. I woke up and I like drank coffee and it wasn't enough so I had another coffee and then I was like so tired that my like hands were jittering <laughs> and I'm like, I think that's why your hands were jittering <laughs> oh goodness maybe they were they were tired because they were dissociating because it was just like so much energy that they were like so. going the opposite direction yeah, I think so I think so I was like I'm not a doctor but maybe one less cup of coffee 
It might uh, it might help with the jittering thing, you know. <laughs> it might it might help with that, but I mean, that's uh, what's so ah, like even going back to dysregulation, it's so fascinating how different um expression is. Because so I I've been really fascinated by like um tracking dysregulation mm. in other people, yeah. and I've noticed um depending on the person, like a lot of people tend to um their pitch tends to go a lot higher. <laughs> Um, their pacing usually speeds up. Um, and like there's a, so I do body work and they, we call it like the nervous system tone. Uh Um, but you could think of it as muscle tone that the tone gets harder. And so that translates, I mean, because I'm such an audio person, I like, I'm really impacted by what I hear and Mm -hmm. what I take in. And it's always, you know, we're speaking from what we're experiencing. And what's interesting is one of my friends tracked my dysregulation, but she noticed that I'm the opposite, which is like, I actually slow down and my pacing like remarkably goes a lot slower. My tone drops and it's just so fascinating, like how different people express like that like dysregulation so dramatically different because someone could perceive that I'm really calm um, and that I'm calming down more. But my friend would be like, uh, what's going on right now? <laughs> right. right. Cause they know you well enough to know. God, that that's so interesting, but it also makes a ton of sense in that it doesn't have to make sense and how it goes sort of across the board. You know, like I, I find for me that, you know, with things where it's the internal anxiety, there isn't necessarily a ton of external anxiety going on. It's all internal anxiety. I'll just, I'll continue to kind of devolve and dysregulate even more and more, you know, and, and kind of get to the point where you sort of have the emotional shakes and the things that are going on there versus in the panic situations, I tend to, I tend to calm down externally when it's, you know, a legit panic. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the most drastic examples are what sort of we've gone through recently of like, you know, you just back in March that day where everybody went to the grocery store and it was like a scene out of a zombie movie. You know? <laughs> and you're just like walking around like, what am I witnessing right here? And I, I just think you remember sort of not feeling panic or nervous, just like, okay, this is what's going on. Or like I, I was living in Manhattan on September 11th. And so like, I'm a, I'm a eyewitness to all that stuff and remembering how I responded to that and what I did and not really getting anxious about what it all meant until later, you know, until after kind of the initial, whoa, what's going on here was there. And then that's where the anxiety kicks in. So it's like on one hand, you know, I'm maybe more high functioning than your average bear in those types of situations. But then later on, when it gets stuck in my head, I'm, I'm more anxious about it. And you can even hear me as I'm talking about it, right? Like I had to clear my throat there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like getting anxious, just like thinking about it. Right. So that's kind of like the space where it's at. So it doesn't even have to like make sense internally how it sort of functions across the board. I wonder if for you, like that kind of ingredient to your personality, as much as it can be a challenge has also been an incredible strength in that you seem to have at some point, figured out how to know what to do to care for yourself kind of instinctually on your own. Am I reading that correctly? Because I needed external help. 
Like I needed mm. other people to like, I needed my therapist to be like, Hey, just so you know, this is what I'm seeing. And then for me to be like, fuck, that's what's going on. You know, like I needed that. I needed that extra help. You seem to have a certain level of self-awareness where you've been able to see these things for yourself and then figure out what the best path is towards finding your way towards healing. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, like, uh, I feel like I've had the, maybe because I've been creating art for like my whole life, I've had a certain level of cognitive awareness, but when it comes to like developing deeper listening with myself, I actually, ah, I, I still really needed to find interdependence with like, having emotionally bonded relationships like with Mm. with like with you you, it sounds like your emotionally bonded relationship of finding safety was with the therapist for me it was a few friends that we would do audio messages on a daily basis and we would create consistency and by having that like I felt like a level of like safety and would get understood and all of those needs met and so I was still like yes there's self-reflecting but there's also yeah, I between that and then cranial sacral therapy where I'm being down regulated through someone else's touch. Like I I mean there yeah, I, I think that there's both. There's like what I've been stepping into lately has been a lot more how to figure out how to down regulate my own system. Yeah. Just because like so much of my um my like programming and patterning is like hoping to find some form of resolution for my emotions when I'm um, attached to someone. Like I keep wanting to have someone else meet my needs for understanding so that I could feel safe. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of my practices now are about how to continually give that to myself so that I don't rely on someone else's emotional capacity or willingness so that I can feel safe. Right. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm still not like, I mean, it's something that I've been like definitely developing, but, um, I mean, if you would have been there for my like conversation with my family on Thanksgiving or like during the holidays before like Christmas, um, <laughs> you would have been like, where's your self reflection <laughs> and down regulation? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. That's what, that's ultimately <laughs> what it comes down to. You know, it's like we, we work and we work and we work. And then there are these moments that just remind us like, okay, so that's still there. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me that. <laughs> and back to work now. <laughs> yep. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. It's, and I mean, and I think it's, it's interesting too, because like it has taken me a long time to what you've been doing with your therapist, it has taken me, it, like, I learned about attachment theory, like, I don't know, something like six years ago. Yeah. But it took me a long time to really want to rely on someone else. Right. So, like, to to even imagine interdependence, because I was so deathly afraid of codependency. Right. Because, like, in my family system, like, them being there in a supportive way was not something I could depend on. So I didn't, I had so much mistrust around other people showing up because like 
my abandonment wounds were like, you have emotional experience, you get abandoned, you get pushed away. Mm -hmm. And so like, it took a lot for me to one, to get to a place where I was accessing my feelings, then for me to vulnerably express them. Um, cause I actually went from one side of the pendulum where I was like withholding to like, I need to express everything because now I know how, right. um, and then to recognize like where someone is at in present time and whether or not they're in a place where they could actually receive what I'm going to say. So I'm not just expressing, but I'm listening at the same time. Right. And so gosh, to integrate the like masculine expression and outward movements and the feminine of like being able to take in and receive, it's been like a really humbling process. You know, in a, in a recent, and I realize I've been talking, I don't actually normally talk this much about therapy, but it's been resonating so much with me that everything like related, but in a, it was in a recent session, not that long ago, when I was like lamenting to my therapist, I was like, you know, what's, what's really hard for me here is that I find myself saying to myself, why connect with people? Because every single one of my relationships, I've been abandoned or have left that person or whatever, like on almost every single one. I mean, I, I do have like, obviously familiar relationships that are lifelong and I've got a best friend that we've been friends for 30 years at this point. So, you know, I've got like relationships like that, but you know, like things like romantic relationships, you know, it's like, I've never found my life partner because here I am, you know, single. Right. So uh, it's like, Every single one of them has ended in that type of feeling of abandonment and being left alone. So where's the evidence to the contrary? You know, how am I supposed to believe that like I can find a lifelong everlasting relationship? And my therapist goes, Josh, you know, every relationship ends. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, God damn it. I was like, you need to go fuck yourself immediately. immediately. <laughs> and she was like, but that's the deal. You know, it's coming to terms with the fact that every single relationship is going to end. And that's, you know, that's the reality. And so it's not so much like, why have I been so unlucky that I haven't like found that thing? It's more the like, you know, I've just considered the, the what really is like an everyday thing to be so tragic that it doesn't feel every day, which isn't to say it's not tragic, but it's also every day, you know? (laughs) So like accepting that love is, you know, coming to love is like letting go of that. And, you know, understanding that there's always mournfulness when you're falling in love and being in love because it's mourning the idea of that, you know? I mean, it's a really, Mm. really, it's a really tough thing to do. It's a really tough thing to do. Especially when I want to be so positive all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I, oh, I like, I had this conversation. I had, I didn't intend on it um, being this way, but I had a four hour conversation (laughs) with a friend of mine yesterday because um, we are both with people that like, I think if they had been diagnosed, they would have had narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. So we are, we are talking about, um, relationships. And at one point when we were kind of uncovering codependency, he like said a few things that like, because I've been so deep in unraveling that part of myself, I was just, I was like, do you 
do you think that like that you're gonna have like a life partner <laughs> and he was he was like he was like yeah and I was and he's like why do you not think that and I'm like no and he's like he's like why do you think that and I'm like because because my experience has been that people change and like right. and I'm really like trying to because there, there's so much ingrained in our culture around romanticized love that, like, has me creating an identity of, like, less than if I don't have it. Right. And that there will somehow be, like, a completeness around it. And what's interesting is whenever I am single and I'm seeing other people in what look like healthy relationships... <laughs> Then when I get in one, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're this other person's fucking human and has their shit. And like, it's not what I think it's going to be. And it's just so hard with how much romanticized love is so shoved down our our throats and like how much like art, like especially as a DJ, the amount of songs that support codependency (laughs) is Oh, so it's it's been interesting just because, like, I feel like I'm starting to go from, like, having unrealistic expectations because I do, like, I get really, I get off on the idea of finding someone that I get to feel really excited about and that, like, now life has purpose again. <clears throat> and then I feel absolutely devastated when my, like, idea of who I thought they were, what I thought we were together uh-huh. is that and it's almost like a weird wake-up call when all the like new relationship hormones of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin wear off and i'm like oh my god like (laughs) shit we're not compatible but i wanted it badly that's what it is i mean that's what i'm kind of thinking about right now which is how do i embrace the mournful grief associated with giving up the two-dimensional understanding of a person i'm trying to fall in love with Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of like where it's at of like, if, if I want to be in love, I need to be willing to like, understand that what gets me so excited to connect with a person is probably going to be incorrect in terms of who they really are and how they actually present and all that stuff, you know, especially when you think about like how we present and I mean, first impressions are always like, I'm going to make up for, you know, the things that I struggle with the most in this first impression, you know, <laughs> And then, like, the process is going to, it's like, oh, actually, sorry, but I'm the opposite, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Or you do what I do, which is, like, I tell them all the things right away, which is, like, yeah, like, you know, sometimes I have a hard time letting someone in because I think they're going to abandon me. And so it's, like, I try to tell them all the things that they will discover eventually. And it's almost like the polar opposite of withholding. Oh yeah. No, I've done that too, where you just start right away. Like the first phone conversation, listen, just so you know, we're having this conversation because we're thinking about falling in love. I want you to know that I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression five years ago and anxiety and had suicidal thoughts and everything. But if you still want to date, like, let's go. (laughs) Why would I want to do that? I don't even know who you are, dude. And like, even that's a two dimensional, you know, presentation of the self, you know? So it's like, Man, it's such a tough uh, try to thing to figure out how to na- how to navigate, especially when you know our biggest role models for how we idealize these things are fictional stories. You know, like, <laughs> when I was a kid, do you remember the movie Say Anything? No. Can you name the people that were acting in it? John Cusack. John Cusack. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah, so it's like a high school coming of age movie. John Cusack is like this super popular high school kid is in love with the uh, the smart girl in his grade who's like you know. All, but anyway, so I loved that movie, and there's a whole generation of dudes my age, especially Jewish guys, who like <laughs> the name of that character is Lloyd Dobler, and we like decided that we were going to be Lloyd Dobler in terms of how we approach relationship in life and all that stuff. And I watched that movie like within the past couple of years. And let me tell you something. It does not hold up. No, 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 no. <laughs> that movie is like an advertisement for codependency. <laughs> yeah. It's like next level stuff. And that's just the narrative. That, like We created this expectation of what love is supposed to look like. And what we created was a really unhealthy expectation. And then it was like, you're almost left with, you know, either you got lucky and you find someone with whom it works and then you just kind of make it work. Or you're one of those people who like live a lie where you present, you know, your love relationships in one way, sort of in public when it's really something really different behind closed doors, you know, or like you find a way to figure out how to be healthy and you actually create like a good relationship. I knew this couple in rabbinical school who they they weren't married, but they had been together for many, many years. And they only they only projected their relationship eight weeks in advance ever. And they said that's how they made it work. That they never made any plans or any promises beyond eight weeks. And they'd just been together for like, you know, 15, 20 years, eight weeks at a time. <laughs> I find that to be really fascinating. You know, what an interesting approach to how people connect with each other. And what they said was, is that it's like, well, you have to always keep it fresh. Like you just can't assume that we're going to be there with each other. So you have to constantly kind of put in that effort. So it's like, we've just been dating the whole time. And I get like, who knows like what it was really, again, like who knows like behind closed doors, but that was like what they shared. And I, I find that to be a really interesting idea. That's like, really against what I want in like the, you know, unhealthy kind of corners of my psyche that like that promise where someone looks at me and says, I will never leave you. I'm here for you forever. Like, that's what I want. But, you know. Yeah. It would really make the parts of ourselves that felt abandoned in childhood feel really safe. If we knew that someone can give us that level of safety. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Like how amazing would that everything, all, like all the problems would go, if I didn't have to worry about that, you know, like all those problems would go away. And yeah, it's, oh. it's in the letting go of that, that maybe actually in the end, I'm, I'm ironically, you know, creating the potential that I might actually have a really long relationship that takes me into my old age. You know what I mean? Like, it's in letting go of that somehow that I might actually be able to have it. But that's the mind fuck. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. It's so, it's so weird. It's so weird. I, by the way, we've been talking for two hours. <laughs> how, how are, how are you feeling right now? I, I'm feeling good. good. I, I do want to eat some food. <laughs> good. Well, um, I, I, I only have one question, but actually it can also wait. You know, one of the things I, I haven't like told you this yet, but pretty much all my other interviewees that I've had on so far have said that this has been sort of a really nice conversation. We would totally do it again. And, and, and the recognition that like this is an on your mental health journey is an ongoing journey. And there are things that we learn and ways that we change that, you know, are sort of all a part of that. 
And so I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. We don't actually have to talk about everything at once because I'd love to, you know, a few months from now, you know, re-engage and continue the conversation if you're open to that. So what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Rockin', rockin'. So I, I did have only one more question and, and that was just to say, you know, well, how are you doing right now? But also that can wait. So I, I'd love to sort of put it on you. Like, would you like to answer that question or maybe call it sort of a day for now? We'll, we'll engage with that question and others next time and let you go eat. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> when when you say how are you right now, you mean like based on like just in present time, based yeah. on like everything. Yeah. Yeah. So you've you know, we've got a little bit of your backstory in terms of where it comes from. We, by the way, in two hours did not even touch the concussion stuff at all, um, <laughs> which is fascinating to me um, because following your Instagram story like I have, you know, I thought that if I was to guess, I'd say we would have spent quite a bit of time talking about that. But I think that's actually kind of cool. I think it's kind of cool that we haven't touched it and we may never touch it, you know, but it's interesting to kind of point out. But, um, but I mean, in terms of like, you know, we've got some of your backstory in terms of how, you know, these things manifested as a child. We've got some scratch, scratch the surface in terms of how you, how you came to realize it and how you faced it. And then, um, and then sort of, well, how are you doing right now? Like, where are you at? I, I know for me, it's sort of like one of the weird things about life is that, from the beginning to the end, you're always in the middle of the story, no matter what. Even even the moment you're born, it's still the middle of the story, you know. And the moment yeah, you die, yeah. it's still so it's always the middle of the story, and um, so it just sort of never stops. So there are certain things that I'm facing right now that I wasn't a few months ago, and there are certain things that I know I'm about to face that like maybe I haven't yet. You know what I mean? So there's always different things to talk about. But I can also say that like, you know, I'm sort of holding it together right now. You know, I'm, I mm. got my techniques. I know what I'm doing to kind of get me through each day. I, I I'm being, I'm practicing a ton of self-forgiveness in terms of just recognizing that we're living in a really crazy time, a worldwide pandemic, political upheaval, you know, <laughs> like all sorts of stuff. And that's going to have an impact. And, uh, um, and then just day to day trying to do the things I need to do to kind of take care of myself. And that's like where I'm at. And it sounds pretty similar to you, but I, I'd love to hear it in your voice. Like, where are you at right now? Like, how how is it going? Yeah, um, I would say consistently, I've been going through a pretty big grief process, which mm. I would also say my story is like, I'm going through a, a major death in a part of who I used to be. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of it is getting out of the most trauma bonded relationship that I've ever been in, in my life. Um, and so the, the part of me that I feel like, like in this death process, I've been experiencing a lot of emotions. And so like on top of what's happening in the world, there's this individual part of my process that has been, feeling the anger and resentment that I have towards myself for the choices that I've made that felt like they were going against what I truly wanted and needed. Yeah. Um, like the ways that I've been out of integrity with myself or wasn't giving myself the self-respect that I needed to because of how much I kind of abandoned myself in my last relationship. Right. Um, 
And then just like all of this work that I've been doing around codependency, it's very humbling and it's bringing up a lot of shame and to really move through that shame. It's like been a lot of humility and admitting to myself and holding myself as compassionately as I can to really take ownership for my choices, not the choices that like this other person made, but the ones that I made and what, what thoughts that, what thoughts or where I've been investing my energy. And there's been this really big, part which i think is is very much the anger that has been really potent because it has me being very connected to the part of myself or the parts of myself that no longer are serving me mm. and i've been also feeling that i mean a big part of it has been recognizing that the lack of attention that I got from my father has really transferred to a lot of my, um, the people that I want in a relationship, the familiarity of finding another man who can't give me the attention that I'm still trying to resolve from childhood. Right. And so like, there's this part of me that my codependency unraveling has been the anger around um, unmet childhood needs. And then like how, I'm seeking out attention or validation or even resolution from that past pain. And so it's, it's a lot of what I've been kind of going through are these waves of feeling the pain, feeling the anger, feeling the resentment, and then feeling the sadness of this relationship that is where it's at. And then also the original relationship, which is where I'm at with my father and really just being with that younger hurt part of myself and also watching that the more that I feel these, these parts of myself that I haven't been able to really without going into re-experiencing, but that I'm now able to really hold in a different way that the other thing that's coming up is how many friendships I have that are like, especially with men that are also very familiar where they where these friendships with these people, they don't have a very strong like connection to their emotional depth. And so then there's a loss that I'm noticing of, of, Oh wow. There's not the quality of connection that I'm really wanting there. So then there's a bigger part of grief of being like, "Uh Oh, it's not just this one really toxic relationship, but there's a lack of desire that I'm waking up to around people that aren't consistently connected to the vibrancy of their own aliveness and their feelings. Right. And so, yeah, I'd say that this has been a really, the, the part of my process that, that I've been in has been all of this emotion that's been tied to, um, the relationship that I have with myself and just recognizing like, um, in holding all these different parts that like my desire and the role that I play is, is shifting and it's integrating and it's really uncomfortable to start saying no to people that I don't want to connect to anymore and to really be with any guilt that I have, um, because they're feeling rejected and me no longer wanting to invest in the connection. Right. <laughs> Right. So it's, yeah, that's been, 
it's, this is, it's still, I'm still in the midst of all of it. Like I only just started communicating stronger boundaries, even in my friendships and uh-huh. it brings up so much. So right. I've been like feeling the tenderness of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's one of those things where it always feels like punishment to the person who has to receive the boundary. It always feels like punishment and their ability to receive it lovingly. And then in turn, I know for me, my ability to receive boundaries lovingly and to take, to understand that boundaries are a loving expression of anger. It's what they are. You know, it's a person like being able to say to you, um, it would be really helpful if, you know, we shifted this here or this here. Do you know what I mean? And then the ability to say thank you to that. And then um, receive it in that way is a really, really significant challenge. And then the ability to deliver it also is a really significant challenge. Um, so, yeah, that's incredible. Um, I, I don't have any more questions. Do you have any questions? Do you have anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> I don't think so. Not this time. Good. Okay. So, look, I'm going to press the stop recording in a second. It's going to stop recording, but we're going to still stay connected. Um, but, uh, I just wanted to thank you so much for talking. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I feel, um, really akin to your story. I mean, so much of your story really resonates with me in such a powerful way. And I'm really honored that you shared it with me here. And, um, I'm really looking forward to continuing to talk, uh, down the road and, uh, you know, let's be friends. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to just be IG friends. You can just be friend friends, you know. This is our first conversation. conversation. I live in San Diego. You live in San Francisco. I've got a, one of my sisters lives in Oakland for a bit. So when I uh, live in Oakland, I don't live in SF. Perfect then. So even closer. Weird weird that I felt like I needed to say that. I was like, not SF, Oakland. Oakland is the city. That's the difference right there. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, and, and when I drive, I feel at home in Oakland. I don't feel as much at home in San Francisco, but I feel at home in Oakland. Ah, that, and I'm from right Chicago. There. We probably have some rivalry because I know that, like, when I would have people from New York come visit Chicago or uh-huh. move to Chicago, there would be, like, this weird competitiveness oh, yeah. over, like, which city was it's better. So <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. So, yeah, I'm a New Yorker, but I was actually born in the Midwest. I was born in Missouri. And then moved oh. to New York when I was seven. So I'm a New Yorker, but I'm not like a full-fledged New Yorker. I can recognize some of that ridiculousness, you know. <laughs> I will say, okay, though, cool. I will say that uh, a deep dish pizza is a, is lasagna. It's not. No! <laughs> Let's be honest. It's lasagna. You can't. I mean, I mean, semantics. I mean, you know, like, it's okay because I, I love that lasagna. It's good lasagna. It's good lasagna. It's good. It's delicious lasagna. And you can't, you can't get much better than, uh, Chicago music. Chicago blues and uh, things like that. You can't, I mean, you know. And I think our public transit might be better than New York's. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, the, the, the public transit in New York just has a certain type of like urine ripeness to it that, uh, New York <laughs> and giant rats and too, giant right? Rats. Oh yeah. I've seen one of those in person, by the way, like really, really a rat on the other platform on the other side for me, that was like the size of a large cat. <laughs> oh God. Like decidedly larger than a small dog. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was like, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but in any case, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to talk to you again real soon. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. All right, here we go.